No woman, no man, no child ever was deeply intimate with my father. The closest anyone ever came to casual camaraderie with the Padishah Emperor was the relationship offered by Count Hasmir Fenring. A companion from childhood, the measure of Count Fenring's friendship may be seen first in a positive thing. He allayed the Landrad's suspicions after the Arrakis affair. It cost more than a billion solaris in spice bribes, so my mother said, and there were other gifts as well, slave women, royal honors, and tokens of rank. The second major evidence of the Count's friendship was negative. He refused to kill a man even though it was within his capabilities and my father commanded it. I will relate this presently. From Count Fenring, a profile by the Princess Irulan. Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name is Mike. And my name is Derek. Each chapter, we open a new bottle of wine and have a bit of a buzz book club, Derek. Ah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get out of old habits. I really wasn't ready for you to start I off know. with the intro. I just stole it from you. Rug right from underneath my I, feet. I saw the look on your face like, what are you doing? <laughs> you saw the fear in my eyes. <laughs> We've entered the unknown. I love it. Are you just trying to do something you didn't see in the prescience? You don't new year, new me, Derek. I'm just trying to try sure. something new. I don't sure. know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whole new revelation. Mike, new book, even. <laughs> new book. The welcome, Prophet. Welcome to book three, The Prophet. Glad we're here. Oh, it's so exciting. Uh as such, mm-hmm. you know, we did red wines in the first book. We I did recall. White wines in the second. Begrudgingly. Got <laughs> I, I think I think we won you over it, in it the end. It was a great it yeah. was a great run. I we only had the one bottle we kinda didn't like, we loved by the end. Yeah. The high <laughs> on the hog. So yeah. what what are we doing this one? Um well this or one. Or this not month, I guess, for the rest of the book. We're gonna be doing rosés, man. <sighs> Split the difference. Yeah, I right down the we, middle. We did a BTD with Rose and I think uh I think that won you over. I loved it. Every, yeah. every minute of it. Yeah. And so uh, tell us about the wine you chose today. So uh, this one, I went, I just saw, it's a kind of a squat bottle. And uh, it just has this uh, circular sticker on it that really caught my eye. And this is uh, Miraval and their uh, ooh, Cote de Provence in oh, uh, France. Good to me. And this is a little vineyard, mic that is co-owned by uh, one, Pierre Peter. <gasps> so we got a piter. Kind of ish. It's with Pierre an it's an Peter. E with a little accent on it. I like to um, imagine his middle name is Peter. Yeah. Oh, naturally. Pierre. <laughs> Pierre. Peter. 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 Oh, Pierre. Peter. 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 Oh. No, I will not say that ten times fast. Um, I will retreat from this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's co-owned by that man. He's a well-known vintner. And the other co-owners are Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. <laughs> really? Yeah, which was kind of weird. That's and, awesome. Uh, so, yeah, they've stayed in this venture. And I guess they uh, they wanted to make, like, a bubbling rosé uh, is, like, the other thing they, they're oh, known for, I guess. Okay, uh, this is not cool. bubbly. We just got our normal. But Yeah, no, I'm finding that I, I, I really like this. Yeah, how's it taste? Well, let me just take a little, take a little sip. Let me yeah, take a little sip. Don't lie to the people. Hmm. 
Oh, that is really good. It's got like a, an air, like a, a very floral aroma when you sniff it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't taste floral at all. No, no. It's like, I mean, there's a lot in that front. It's very bright bloom yeah. to it. Uh, but then it just sort of like filters out to this great dry taste in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And like, it's very clean and crisp in that finish. Um, and it rides too. Like, um, I don't think I need to take another sip for a while. Like that taste is just going to be in my mouth and it's a good taste. Yeah. I yeah. like it. It's really, it's nice. And it's refreshing each time. And mm-hmm. like that bloom rolls back over it. It sort of washes away everything and just starts anew. Uh, but yeah, so that's the Miraval Rosé. I can, I can dig it. Yeah. That's an A plus for me. Nice. But Mike, uh, for us. We had a great start to this chapter. It's oh got a quote God. about my favorite character, who I keep alluding to. Yeah. So anytime something about him pops up, you're just like, yeah. I'm giddy. Giddy as can be. <laughs> uh, what did you think of what we got told? What Irulan related to us? Um, I, I, The more we uh, get quotes from Irulan, the more we really start to see the, the definition of who this Padisha Emperor is. Okay, yeah. Hushadam yeah. is. Yeah, like through those we've had two visions of in my father's house. Right. Now it's like his relationships and the big fact is he really didn't have any. Mm-hmm. And the only one he really did have was his friend Count Fenring, who I guess he knew from a very early age. Uh yeah, I mean I gave you uh, a little rundown encyclopedia wise. Yeah. Like yeah, he, uh Fenring would have grown up in the Imperial Court. Mm. So he got close to Shaddam in his early age and it's like uh through his teen years. What well, says from yeah, from childhood. Right, right. And yeah. then uh, Fenring was the one who saved him from a few of the death attempts on his life. Yeah, I believe. And discovered yeah. the Hunter Seeker, mm-hmm. so that's great. So Fenring was the one that, that discovered the Hunter Seeker. Yes. That's really cool. Yep. And that the uh, Elrud the Ninth had deployed it against his own son. That's, oh man. So the idea that like he could trust his man implicitly, but Fenring also has his own, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's morality or agenda like if he doesn't want to do something he just won't do it uh what are you drawing from to make that get that conclusion this this one thing in here this uh, man that he refused to kill or this yeah person i mean he like refused to kill yeah i mean even if you order me to kill this man i'm capable of doing it the fact that he can say no and not be like punished or reprimanded i think you are just not considering why he said no what if there was good reason for him to say no and that that was in the emperor's best interest Oh, interesting. Because the emperor, you know, is he's he got a fiery temper. Mm-hmm. He can mm-hmm. get riled up. He can also get drawn into things that are well beyond uh, his total understanding, i.e., the Arrakis affair. Gotcha. You know, like he uh, he got a little hoodwinked in that whole deal. The Leto was killed under his nose against his orders. Yeah, that's right? true. From a lesser man and all things. Um, but I love uh, this instance, this moment where he says no. Mm-hmm. We're going to actually see that. Oh, it's in this book. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Whether it is a memory or an actual moment, I'll leave that to be decided. But, like, okay. Frank will take us there at the very least. Uh, and it is not what is uh, related in this chapter, which so, Irulan totally lies. <laughs> so when Irulan says, I will relate this presently, that's Frank like, I'll, I'll be there in a sec. Yeah, yeah. It definitely is not him being like, and so apply that to this chapter. Look carefully for clues. <laughs> yeah, it's not in here. <laughs> uh, interesting. So, like, how do you think this relates to the chapter at all? Or do you think it's just alluding to, like, in the future? You're really enjoying your role, taking this over. I would have asked you that question, (laughs) Mike. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Because so we're going to go into a conversation between um, the Baron talking with Fade. And between the two of them, maybe, yeah, it's kind of a 
the Baron telling Fade not to kill him anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that's in where it is. The there's sort of a parallel in the Count telling um, the Emperor no, and then like the Baron having to tell his subordinate. Like it's a little reversal, uh, like a parody almost of the dynamic. So like the positive negative of that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Where, like there's great things about it, but there's also negative things about it. And I, I think. They don't really, I mean, I think they play around it and dance about it a little bit, but I think they're pretty honest. Like, yeah, like, I I tried to kill you, and, like, I want to take your place. After a bit, Fade only gives that once he realizes 100%. Like, That's true, that's true. But I'm just saying, like, we do reach that point where just, like, we know where each other stands. Mm -hmm. I just need to let you know (laughs) what you're doing. That's fine. You can have it, but not right now. You're not ready. (laughs) I've got more. You need me. Uh, the other purpose of this quote, I think, is just exposition to kind of let us know what's been happening in the Imperium since the Arrakis I affair mean, started. Really, that's this is the only way we learn the bre- well. Uh, the um, we've had um, one offshoot of like um, in Chapter Two, the Baron telling us he was going to like push this information out and mm. stuff like that, like make sure the Emperor got catered to. Um, uh, Spy, you know, like uh, contacts through Chome was mm-hmm. gonna. That's how he's gonna get that information about who the traitor was and this. Right, and that. right. Uh, but you're right. This is the only direct thing of like finally someone in the imperial household showing us essentially, and that yeah, cost billions of salari <laughs> get spayed out, <laughs> and that's sort of uh, where the emperor actually seems to have fronted some costs then, because that would have been coming from like he seems to be the one paying that out if right. uh, the the empress is sort of bitching about it. Mm-hmm. Of like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Harkonnens are bleeding us dry. Um, but yeah, anything, uh, what do you, what do you got for that quote? Anything you want to throw in? No, that's all. That's what I got. That's cool. All right. You ready to continue with this chapter? Let's can I, in. can I take my normal rollback? Okay. Just, okay. For, just for a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Otherwise my notes are useless. <laughs> <laughs> They're my notes now. Uh, yeah. So Mike, Oh, this starts off. We're back on Gaiety Prime. Mm-hmm. We're back in Harco, and the Emperor is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> he's all in a huff and a rage, and he's leaving his apartment. And we go the on. The Emperor? <gasps> is that what I said? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm oh, upgrading oh, oh. the Baron too quickly. <laughs> I mean, I'm living in his daydream. Ooh. I imagine that's what he just saw himself as. <laughs> new year, new Baron. <laughs> <laughs> Upgrade. You're right. Oh, the Baron is in a rage. He leaves his apartment. Mm-hmm. And we go on a little tour quickly. He's naming off. I love how it's he bobbed and twisted in his suspensors with violent <laughs> movements. Like, just, I would love to see that. Oh, didn't we get a little flying Baron in the David Lynch movie? Oh, yeah, in the beginning of it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It's, uh, that is totally what I imagined, kind of. It was something out of Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he. Well, you have a fat man floating in the air. We're like, how is that not going to be kind of funny? Of just he's all angry, but it's like I imagine it's still sort of slowed. Uh, right. Yeah. No, I just, uh, I just imagine that he's bobbing and twisting faster than he's actually moving through the hall. So mm-hmm. it just looks like. I imagine, uh, you know, like a baby roller. Yeah. 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 Something like that, but like the the wheels are stuck, so it's just like <laughs> flailing. But he's going a little bit at a time. Caught, caught on yeah. things in the hallway. Um, well, ultimately we go and we, uh, we barge into this little, uh, servant anteroom and we're going to interrupt poor Echidna food. And one, the food's still alive. It's been two years. He's been guard captain. Yeah. Also, is this the first time we got his first name? Um, uh, I feel like we have had it before, but I, I forgot it. I for think sure. it is either that or I told you it, but I, I do believe it showed up once. I think you're right. Uh, but it is, yeah, I can the food. 
Uh, so he has been our guard captain. And he's, he's doing all right. Yeah, he's sort of. I mean, it, I feel like he does get a bad rep. We only see him when he's high. <laughs> he's always caught off guard, too. And, but he's got a tough job, okay? Yeah, I don't. It's true, it's true. I understand why this man needs to self-medicate. Uh, but we open it up, and he's got, like, the Samuta music going. And uh, I, I can't even imagine what this guy... It's got to be, like, electronica. Because this is eerie, like, electric yeah, music yeah. kind of flowing. I imagine it's just, like, trance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think, like, trance, but with, like, a tamarind. So, like, that... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that kind of a noise. Uh, <laughs> the Baron just yells at him. And the this, food. Yeah, brings the food up. Thank God he has this drug in him, though. It's the only thing that keeps him calm. <laughs> <laughs> he is ter- <laughs> Yeah, what do you got? Just like, that's the only thing keeping him from trembling. Yeah, and, like, they say he's there, but there's an overlay of fear on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the Baron, I love it. He takes a little moment just to note the fear in everyone's presence, and I just think that's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. to him I'm like he loves that little moment everyone's sort of like crouched away in the corner and uh like Bar- a little good cop bad cop with Nafood right now oh I only get the bad cop because yeah he asks well, him a totally leading question well, like, in a silken tone in a, yeah, yeah in a barren <laughs> way have you always anticipated dangers to my person <laughs> and Nafood like he obviously affirms this like what else is he gonna say <laughs> So the Baroness and like, where's Fade? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the Baron roars, where's Fade? <laughs> I think like Nafood is actually worried this might be a trap or maybe like a trick kind yeah. of. Uh, just like, like, is he a danger to your person? <laughs> yeah. Or is it wrong if I do answer that he is? Right. Um, but he tells the Baron that Fade's in the slave quarters with the slave women. And uh, recall that, Mike, this is where Howat was trying to exert influence earlier. Right, right, right. The very department. Now, uh, the Baron moves closer up to Nafood. All Nafood's minions back away further, distancing themselves from the object of wrath. Again, satisfying to the Baron. Mm-hmm. He's kind of loved that. And uh, the Baron reminds Nafood that he is always to, like, watch the Na Baron, know where he is, know who or what he's saying and who he's talking to. <laughs> Got this little, little list for him to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's gonna, he has to report basically every one of Fade's movements back to the Baron. We have a little spy network on him. And uh, this is the right when now the Baron's ready to kind of get to the uh, the crux of the issue here. Because he brings up the slave boys. They're also to be inspected by Unifood personally. It's like, why is the Baron so angry? Mm, yeah, he caught a, caught a blemish on one of the boys' thighs. There was a needle so, um, kind of buried right in there. A poison. Yeah. Basically a little gom jabar. Yeah. Oh, that's the way they love to get these people. <laughs> But man, what a what a gross job for Nafu to have <laughs> to personally inspect. <laughs> like you all want these... me to inspect all the slave boys? Every boy. Well, just that he has been for two years. Like mm. he did inspect him. He just missed it. Um, and at this point, someone appears at the door almost <laughs> too coincidentally, and it's Fade Ralta. And uh, he just sort of like, "Oh, Uncle!" And the Baron world stared at Fade Ralta standing in the doorway. The presence of his nephew here, now, the look of hurry the young man could not quite conceal, all revealed much. Fade Ralpha had his own spy system focused on the Baron. Oh, found out that it didn't work. Ah, uh, what do you mean? The, 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 the reason he rushed up here? The, the attempt didn't work. His spy yes. system, though. No, no, this his is, spy system works. And I think this is showing a little capability on uh, 
uh, fade side, mm-hmm. a little more deviousness than I would have expected from him yeah, given have, the uh, arena chapter. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected him to build his own. I would have expected him to take over like Vlad's once Vlad uh, passed. And just be dependent yeah, yeah, or yeah. be even more of a dependent on mm-hmm. Hawa. He's a, he's a go-getter. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's got some uh he's some got the and ambition. Some ambition. Yeah, aka murderous tendencies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. terrible purpose. What did that be? Uncle side? I don't know what that uh. <laughs> now uh, the Baron pointedly instructs in the food at this point, like, go get that body <laughs> from my room. <laughs> and I feel like it's sort of just letting Fade know, like, are oh, you here right now? Yes, you failed. That thing is mm-hmm. dead. And uh Vlad keeps his hand underneath his robe on his projectile weapon the whole time. And also thinks, my shield's the best. Thank God for that. <laughs> Which, to me, do you think that implies the others are worse? Or yeah. just that, like, he got himself a No, I think he definitely purposefully uh, doesn't have the best shields on other people. It's yeah, just, like, like a, best a, for me. me a little, only. like, safety's taken out of each of theirs. And just, like, or a little inhibitor to stop it from going to max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't know. He's, he's got the juice on it. You know, he's got those extra suspensors. He's probably got a battery pack in there. Yep, yep. But it's actually uh, Fade who sends two guards off to take care of this body. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting that he sort of usurps um, Nafud's job right there in front of the Baron. Yeah. Well, no, he also he shows his hand is the big thing, too. That, that's what I'm, yeah, by doing that, it's yeah. sort of like, that. why would you reveal you have these two? Yeah. And not just Baron's let <laughs> Nafud do this shit. And because he, he nods, and he, or with a glance and a nod, these two guards take off. And the Baron does see that. It's like, takes those two, eh? <laughs> yeah. Like, mental check. And that's why I... Looking back to that chapter at the end of book one where Jessica was on the litter watching Piter talk with the Baron and how, from her perspective, both of them were so bad at observation. Like, just terrible at it. Right. We take Jessica out of the picture. We put the Baron in a place of power. The Baron is the Bene Gesserit through this whole chapter. He's reading everybody like a book because they're so plain and just simple. I feel like, do you think that's a lack of consistency on the character? Or do you think that's just uh, the heat of the moment for the bear? Like he had other things on his mind, so he wasn't thinking or like really looking out for the small nuances. I I think it's the all the characters. Where like one Piter is obviously different from everybody else, isn't right. that? Um, <laughs> You're damn right, he is. Yes, he is. Uh, and I, I yeah, I I don't think it's so much the things that was going on the bear. And I I think it is just the people. Like Piter is a more difficult person, and even the Baron is going to call him like devilishly cunning eventually. Mm-hmm. And like you know, he always refers to him in such a flattery and admires Piter for what Piter was. Yeah. Uh, and fate is just not that. Iken's not that. The guards definitely aren't that. So I think he can just, like, read through these people. And it is just, like... like now he is the smartest person in the room. Yeah, yeah, literally. Because he only keeps dumb people around. Right, right, Because right. he, he's so insecure. Um, so, with the Baron making note of that, yeah. Those guys basically have a death mark on them at this mm-hmm. point. Poor bastards. Uh, Fade tells the Baron, like, when the Baron asks him what he was doing, he's like, oh, I was just down playing uh, Cheops in the slave quarters. <laughs> With the slave master. Yeah, and he's like, oh, oh, really? You're going to tell this lie? Well, did you win? And he's like, oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Baron, uh, he quickly comes up with a wicked plan that was going to torment, I think, both fate and Nafud. Because, like, (laughs) why not pick on Nafud while you got the chance? Yeah, no, I I mean, like, he likes Nafud where he's at. It's like, he doesn't ask questions. He gets it done. Mm Mm-hmm. But you keep making him do dirty work. Yeah, just like, exactly. Yeah. And the Baron snaps his fingers. Nafud, you wish to be restored to my good graces. <laughs> Which is always, <laughs> that's where he's really picking up. Like, Sir, what have I done? <laughs> like, absolutely. 
<laughs> That's unimportant now, the Baron said. Fade has beaten the slave master at Cheops. Did you hear that? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Port of Booty just does not know the right answer. Nope. And so he's like, you're going to take three men and garrote the slave master. <laughs> Like, good God. I like that he even tells him how he's going to kill that one. <laughs> yeah. You're going to do it with a goddamn garrote. And then he's going to take a balisette string. <laughs> yeah. I like how he's like, oh, you're good at Cheops. You play the balisette too? Great, grab that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we can't have an up chess players. Uh, not on the Harkonnen planet. So Feta, he tries to interject real quick, and the Baron like wades into silence and mm-hmm. just like, yeah, power move. Really taking control. We can't have inept chess players no, in our employ. No, not in Harco. Mm-hmm. There's also just some shade on Fade there. Just like, if the slave master lost to you, it's like, that. what's that saying about you? I'm going to kill the slave master because he wasn't good enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, you just called his bluff of like, be ca- I think it's almost I like mean, a, hold it, on, I was going to say, I think it's almost like, be careful how you choose to lie to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, I will turn this back on you. I think that is the ultimate uh, message there. I just thought there was a nice little like double entendre there. Has it a double entendre? What do you mean? A double entendre, isn't a double entendre with two meanings? Yeah, what's, what, I don't understand what the second meaning is. We cannot either. have such inept chess players in our employ. Oh, okay. So like, because the Slave Master lost one game against Fade Rautha. And you mean like the intrigue between them? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. That went right past me. I, just, I mean, I just think that's another way you can look yeah, at it as well. No, but, no, uh, your I, point is ultimately with the point of the... This, uh, the literal. But yeah. I, I think the metaphor is like couched in there is awesome. I didn't even catch that. Uh, but yeah, the chess game between the two of them. That's exactly what they're playing. Yeah. But they just don't realize there's a third player. <gasps> How what? So now uh, the bear or uh, where were we just at? Oh, oh, the better part because this keeps this like punishment keeps growing. Mm-hmm. So Nafood's gonna have to go grow the slave master. Okay, <laughs> at that point, um, <laughs> and bring the body back to make sure it was done yeah, right. Because I want to see it. I want to see that corpse. I've I've played this game a few times. I gotta see it. And uh, at this point, the two guards who had left pass by carrying the boy right in a little bundle oh, yeah, yeah and the baron's just like ah oh, all right and the food kill them too look how they move that body it's not nearly as neat as it should he's be. just not in a good mood <laughs> and bring those corpses for me to see <laughs> which i'm like god damn it no food he has to start making a list at this point i think <laughs> i gotta grope this guy i gotta kill these guys this way but but he doesn't like the way the bodies are carried so i gotta make sure i carry them really nicely too i'm gonna get a cart <laughs> <laughs> now uh the food he's still a little buzzed because uh, he's just like my lord is is there anything that happened do as your master has ordered fade Ralph said <laughs> and he th- and fade Ralph thinks all i can hope is for now is to save my own skin <laughs> just imagine fade in his mind is just like good god man just get out of here <laughs> yeah are you kidding me <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Every time you talk, two more. Actually, it's like a factor more of people die. They're all prime numbers, I think. I think it's one, three, nine. <laughs> I think that's how the Baron works. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. It would be one, two, five. No, no. Oh, two, seven. Yeah. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to the large number yeah. at the end. Um, and so, yeah, I like fades. Get the fuck out. And the Baron is like, ooh, he knows when to cut bait. That's your one good skill you got so far. We're making a little like, uh, it's like Fade's evaluation. He's mm. coming for his mid-year review. 
Now, at this point, the Fade and the Baron are both acutely aware of each other's involvement in this whole encounter. And they're both just trying to... Actually, Fade, I think, is more trying to save face. The Baron is just trying to pull this out of him in the most embarrassing way possible. Right. Like, he wants you to admit and, like... uh, Or, I guess, no, he probably doesn't want Fade to admit. This is, like, very much a test, I probably, for his heir, right? Yeah. Where, you know, he's he's always... He liked being lied to in that last time when Inkin or Iken refused to tell him how many people had died uh, from that Sabacar oh, yeah. report. And he was like, good. He knows like to do this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wouldn't you rather know? Like, sometimes I think he wants them to do like this wrong thing that is like how the Harkonnens operate. Mm-hmm. Like the Harkonnen MO. And, um... Well, the food leaves uh, to get busy with all his killing. <laughs> um, oh, uh... He takes three guards, Mike. You want to give him names? Oh, uh... We just need three space names. <laughs> the first name I had was not a space name. What did you have? Je- like, Chest- like, Chester. Chester. <laughs> <laughs> but I know how he got his name. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Chester, Chester, Chester and Steve. Chester, Steve, and I'm just going to go Chopter. Chopter. Uh, adding Tur on the end of Cheops. <laughs> Chester, Steve, and Chopter. I love Chester. <laughs> I don't know why it popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, whatever could it have been. <laughs> so uh, at this point, the Baron is going to invite Fade for a little walk. Uh, why don't we head to my chambers uh, while uh, Nafood's gone? And he lets Fade take the lead. And he kind of follows behind him. Oh, he's like, I'm not going to turn my back to you. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And, well, and I know, I think intentionally he's making Fade turn his back to him. Yeah. Like, and, you know, he's got his hand on a fucking gun the whole time. He's got the projectile <laughs> shooter. Like, That's true. And he knows where that weak spot in your shield is. And this is like a great moment because like, so they start going and Fade tried not to walk too swiftly. He felt the skin crawling on his back as though his body itself wondered when the blow could come. His muscles alternately tensed and relaxed. Oh. Have you heard the latest word from Arrakis? The Baron asked. No, Uncle. (laughs) Phaedrautha forced himself not to look back. He turned down the hall out of the servant's wing. Like, that's great. And just like the cat, <laughs> let me ask you about Arrakis. And just like, oh, God. Um, <laughs> like, wh- why? Just why? Yeah, that would be burning in my... Like, to think, mm-hmm. like, the Baron wouldn't bring this up on an off chance. Yeah. Like, we're having this discussion after the previous events for a reason. Now, Vlad tells him there's a new prophet among the Fremen. Mohadib. It's named after this funny little mouse, essentially. Um, or funny that it's named after this little mouse. Uh, but he is told Raban, just let them have their religion. Like, great instruction, but Keep them occupied. This, this, is ju- this feels just like a weird line. Hmm. <clears throat> Why is that? I don't know, it just feels forced to me. Of, uh, like, name-dropping Moadim. Yeah, like, oh, there's a prophet, and, like, this I, is his name. You know what stands out to me of, like, uh, maybe having the Baron know what Moadim means? Like, that seems like information that he wouldn't care about. Yeah, that and is kind of weird. That sort of, and that's like the one like line in there you're supposed to be like, hey, it's Paul, it's Paul. It just, it, it just kind of makes me think of uh, kind of Monte Cristo. What where, about uh, where uh, you hear about like, oh, do you hear about the new noble that's like in town visiting? His name is blah blah blah. It's like, that's cool. Is that really necessary? <laughs> <But> wait, <what? laughs> 
<laughs> like that they call him the Count of Monte Cristo? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I, I don't think you're too comparison. I see where you're coming from. Right, right, right. Monte Cristo, I think that is important. <laughs> because uh, for him to be a noble, they need to know where your nobility comes from. Mm-hmm. And so he gives them this mysterious island, essentially. That's in the middle of the Mediterranean. Right, right, right. Yeah, so they're all like a little uh, aloof to who he actually is. Um, that, I'm, that's the vibe I'm getting from this, though. I, okay, I dig. I dig. I think we both agree. That it does sound it sounds very unbarren and like uh, canned, almost. I feel like this sentence removed from this chapter, yeah. chapter would still be the same. Definitely. It's not enhanced by it. Oh, I, I think you need to be told about the prophet. And that uh, intentionally the Harkonnens are letting the prophet go. I think, yeah, you should have dropped Moadib. Mm-hmm. Just called it that. Religion on it. Prophet. Yada, yada. And uh, I, think it, I think it is important for Frank to let us know, like, why they haven't systematically sought out the prophet. Like, oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. Like, yeah. Why? Well, like, if it is a, me- a person of power among the Fremen, they would mm-hmm. target that naturally. Um, but uh, well, we all actually we're gonna expand. Okay, okay, we're- I see where you're coming from. I think you've won me over on that. Okay, it's I- just a way to just, like show us like why haven't they just steamrolled this? Yeah, but I mean we already kind of know Raban is not really capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Not so hot. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm I'm really struggling not to jump ahead too far. I'm gonna oh. tell you something. The next chapter we're gonna kind of expand on this idea. Okay, we're gonna stick with the Baron. And it's hard for me not to just be like, Mike, don't you? Because I'm like, don't you already know? Because it, it's it's one of those chapters where uh, it's like a oh, one, it's one like and two three consecutive chapters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like okay. it's like bookends, and I'm like, oh, you. I want to tell you so much, but I need. I know right. you got to go through the. You know, you got to learn. You got to experience <laughs> it in your own right. Um, so let it pass. But I, I'm glad I'm kind of winning you over to it. I think mm-hmm. that's the only reason it's there. It does feel a little off to me as well. Of like, yeah, and, but and I he, understand the purpose of it. Yeah, and he brings it up in a weird. Skew of events. We're like right now. You're like, what about your thing with fate? Like yeah. that's that's the pressing issue yeah, yeah, right yeah. now. And uh, fate and Vlad will have a couple of moments where the thoughts of one are replied to by the other verbally as we mm-hmm. go forward, which I think is like kind of funny and like how Frank sets it up, especially with uh with his old man comment that comes down the road. But um, this first one starts with uh, what do we have? We fade Rathus being like, that's very interesting, Uncle Fade Rathus said. He turned into the private tr- uh, corridor to his uncle's quarters, wondering, why does he talk about religion? Is it some simple hint to me? The Baron's response is, yes, isn't it? The Baron said, <laughs> like, if you just pull that line out and, like, give it there, I'm like, yeah. I love that bit. I'm just like, <laughs> you have this internal thought of fate, and the Baron is like, yes, isn't it? I'm like, okay, buddy. I hope you really got that. Like, All right. Frank, Frank is being as frank as he can. <laughs> The Frank takeaway. Frank takeaway. Oh, I always forget what you call yeah, that. So, how can you forget it? Because I, I want to use frankly as the word oh. for it, but a Frank takeaway is always the better. Yeah. So at this point, we get to the Baron's uh, the Baron's apartment, and it's clear there was a struggle in here. And uh, there's some things knocked over. Among them on the floor is an unspooled soother reel. And uh, any soother reel. Mike, we got no definition. It's unspooled. So yep. I know you can spool it. So it's like, yeah, it, the reel is like what exactly you think it is. Okay. It's got to be like sugar wire kind of or something. Thickness. Something like, tensile. Yeah. 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 Well, I just mean like, oh, you, basically I want to know what you think it is. 
like, what do you think the soother real? Clearly, soother. Uh, mm-hmm. We know he was about to have like a crazy sexual encounter with his prostitutes, is it like a sex swing or something. I don't know. Like, I maybe like some sort of like aphrodisiac, or is it just like calming music? Uh, is it porn? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking like um, making. I don't know. Have we ever had like a technology that does like not us, but like in Dune, um, that is sort of like resonant to the body in a way? Yeah, Samuta music. Sam- yeah, okay. Like, but well, that you take the drug to combine with, but the music is the, played intentionally. The music is too. played specifically a certain yeah, way yeah. to enhance the drug. So maybe this is some sort of like aphrodisiac resonance sound. I don't know. <laughs> Do you, you ever see Zoolander? Yeah. It's the Relax album, the vinyl. <laughs> What's on? No, I don't remember that. Oh. Joke. I that joke from it. Oh, it's it's oh, it's uh like a 1980s song called "Relax," mm-hmm. but uh, it's like the uh, the uh, trigger for this guy to be like a sleeper agent. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> the, the super, yeah. candidate, the fashion model, like assassinates the prime minister of Malaysia, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or tries to. Wasn't Will Ferrell the villain? <laughs> yeah. Right. He invented the piano key necktie. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. That's great. But yes, yeah, so like I think that's where Sue the Real ends up falling into to some extent. And um you know, the Baron uh he gets real at this point, and we're ready now to confront Fade outright. He's brought him to the scene of the crime. He mm. knows Fade is complicit in all this. He knows Fade has a spy network and this and that. And the Baron just opens, it was a clever plan, but not clever enough. Tell me, Fade, why didn't you strike me down yourself? You've had opportunity enough. And all the while, keeping his shield turned to maximum, which is Uh, like, that's how we talk to Raban as well. Mm -hmm. So remember the effect of that is that that makes a visual like shimmer that Fade can see. And it's letting them know. Like, yeah, this mm. is this is a power play. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is a uh, you know how I said like this is kind of like a a game of chops in a way. Yes, like this is this is the move. And how I completely yeah. understood that metaphor in the moment. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, for who? For the you think for, that's the Baron's move? Yeah, he's going check and like <laughs> fade. He gets out of check right away. He resolves to be bold, and he just he takes a seat without invitation. Before the Baron, before even responding to the Baron, mm-hmm. which is also a very um, flashes back to Raban. Oh man, didn't even put a seat in the room for Raban. <laughs> Fade just <laughs> takes one. <laughs> and now uh, I think I think both of them know how this game goes. <laughs> wait, wait, who's the both of them in this? These two guys or the, the brothers? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. They know Raban just gets the shit end of the out there and Raban are just like, he's never going to have a chair, so you got to look for one. Always keep an eye out for those chairs. <laughs> oh, you think Raban told him after that meeting? <laughs> Next time you're in there with Uncle. <laughs> there was no chairs, Fade. There were no chairs. <laughs> so That's why there's so many chairs with H's on a rock, because they just put so many more out there knowing, like, we're going to need these. <laughs> it's going to be, like, several in every room, just like, in case. <laughs> I would like to think, yeah, when we're looking over the reports out of a rack, it's like, Rapon, why are there so many chairs? <laughs> it's a personal, personal purchase. We have to recycle our metal, goddammit. Get rid of these chairs. <laughs> so... With uh, Fate here resolving to be bold, he tells the Baron that his hands should be clean, just like the Baron taught him. 
And again, this is a, like the test part. That's what the Baron wants to hear. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of like, ah, all right. You, you know, you remember the lesson of the truth sayer, essentially. I've told you about them and what they're capable of. Uh, and for how much of a point he's willing to make about a truth sayer again. And how valuable a weapon they are. Uh, well, Fade sees them as a weapon. The truth sayer? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So he sees the value in them. Cause I he, think, but Baron recognizes the danger in them. More right. So, so the Fade, Fade asks his uh, uncle, like, why, you, why don't you have uh, a truth sayer? Like, it would be such a useful tool. Just like you're saying. Yeah. And he's like, you know my taste. <laughs> <laughs> Little boys. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and he hates witches. Um... And at this point, too, I think it's interesting that Fade, like, pushes on that twice before the Baron is finally just like, look, I hate witches, and we're not changing topics. Mm -hmm. I'm like, back to what we were discussing, Fade. And the Baron asks him about this time in the arena years ago. And uh, he tells me... He's thinking back to that day. Mm -hmm. He's starting to... Which means, like, he didn't question it, I think, up until this point. A little bit in the booth, but, like, that got by him. Mm-hmm. And now he's sort of, I think, looking about putting everything in together. Maybe, maybe a lingering doubt, but like it's like, ah, you have been this conniving the whole time. And um, he tells, uh, you know, Fade, no evasion. He, like, answer my question. And uh, Fade, thinking to himself, is just like the Baron knows, else he wouldn't ask. Right? Like, yeah, this is a, I'm in a in a uh, corner right now. There's no way out except yeah, like yeah. brute honesty, essentially. And uh, he tells him, yes, it, w- it was. And uh, his Baron's sort of asking him, like, oh, and he almost got you at that time, didn't he? That, that, I remember that fight. Yeah. That was yeah. pretty close. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, he almost he did. did. He almost did. And then the Baron has, like, a great backhanded compliment here of, like, ah, if you had finesse and subtlety to match such courage, you'd be truly formidable. <laughs> like, that, thank you? Yeah. Like, what do you say? I'm saying you are not subtle and you do, <laughs> yeah. you're a blunt instrument yeah. at this point. You're really only shades better than Rabad. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's great. And um, Fade at this point, like it sort of like uh, disengages him from the conversation. And he's sort of looking around the room being like, why didn't he fucking kill this guy? <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> and the, the best part, and as he had done so many times since that terrible day on Arrakis, he found himself regretting the loss of Piter, the Mentai. <gasps> oh, oh, Mike, I did. I forgot that's why I pulled that whole uh, paragraph out for you. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. There, uh, there'd been a man of delicate, devilish subtlety. If it hadn't saved him, though. Again, the Baron shook his head. Fate was sometimes inscrutable. We remember Piter fondly. Yeah, that's the that was something I was reaching for is the delicate devilish subtlety. It's a fucking great mentat. <laughs> Piter wouldn't have been so bad at this. No, oh my Oh, the missteps we've made with mm-hmm. Piter gone. We would have yeah. done a lot of stuff if Piter had still been around. I'm telling you, man. We wouldn't have promoted the food, that's for sure. <laughs> no, we wouldn't have. No, sir. Um oh my god. Do you think Fade would be dead at this point if Fighter was still around? Fade? Mm-hmm. No, because ultimately we know the purpose of Fade. We know that's the Baron's wish, ultimately, to sort of like take over the family biz. Oh, I think Piter would have killed Fade. No. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of looking off in the distance to get a fighter. Like, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, you know Fade wasn't going to keep him around. You know Piter knew that, so. <laughs> but I'm thinking back to. Uh, I think Piter would have somehow gotten the house. I don't know how you do that. I mean, he was a, he was a duke for a moment. He, he might not a, a baron. He had a beautiful week as a dukedom. But uh, no, I, I I think back to that meeting when we first met Piter and Fedorotha, mm-hmm. where uh, it was sort of almost like a uh, battle of lip between Baron and uh, Piter. Yeah, and uh, when Baron says like, "I can take away what you want and love the most oh. with like the spice," and Piter's just like, "Yes, it's funny how that can happen." Sort of like moves right behind, like, right Fade. behind Fade. Yes. Yeah, he took those mincing steps, and Fade looked up, <laughs> like, not knowing the danger yeah. that was like, yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, him looking up into Piter's eyes. <laughs> run, child, run! <laughs> Ooh, that's good. That's great, Todd. Um, so we get a little Piter moment. Then we come back, and like I said, so Fade is sort of like he disengages from the conversation. He's looking around the room. The Baron catches this and sort of speaks out loud uh, in what is uh, some spectacular bullshitting. <laughs> Because he says, ah, how did I best him? Ah, now fade. Let me keep some weapons to preserve me in my old age. It's better we use this time to strike a bargain. And uh, we'll come to learn, yeah, he did not uh, best this man on equal footing. No, <laughs> no he no. got ample warning. But I love that he's just sort of like, weapons to preserve my old age. Like, let you think about what it could possibly mm-hmm. be. Because your spies have no clue. And you're never going to be able to solve it. Because it's a very obvious out. And Hawat's not going to tell you that he told the Baron. But using the word bargain, that perks uh, Fade's ears a little bit. Because he's relieved at this. A bargain means we're equals. A bargain means I have leverage to negotiate at some point. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not just you dictating what's going to happen. So the Baron tells Fade, like, ah, he's good material, but he has more to learn. And then we get that other great moment of uh, thoughts being followed by someone else's words. Mm -hmm. All right, Dundee. So uh, Fade is in his head going, get to the point, you old fool. Fade (laughs) wrote the thought. You think me as an old fool? The Baron said. <laughs> and that one, I was like, that's too blatant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too frank. Um, <laughs> too frank, yeah. And he goes, I must dissuade you of that. But that's where I'm like, the Baron is clearly reading him. Yeah, yeah, Every yeah. time Fade turns to do something, he's very moving his entire body, obviously. <laughs> the Baron's not missing this. And I think this is... Uh... This is the pitch as well from the Baron just saying, like, you could keep trying to do this, but, like, I'm showing you right now that you are not ready to take over. You still have so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, it's like, uh, it's. I think the Baron realized his, the gig is up and that, like, if Fade doesn't stop, you're going to die. Because mm-hmm. I bet that boy probably came as close as death could come. Right. You know, if it wasn't for Hawa, you would be dead right now. The Baron sees that. How many more plans does Fade have up his sleeve? I need to scare the shit out of this kid and get it, get myself right, right, right. An, uh, an amount of safety. And that really pushes Vlad into a place that he's not used to being in. So the bargain um, is going to be that uh, Fade stops trying to kill Vlad and Vlad will step down sooner than later. He will go retire into an advisory position, sort of uh, take a back seat. Which, uh, in Vlad describing that, that sounds like a really stable form of government. Yeah. Of like, why didn't that ever end up being the way kings, like, roll? 
I, it must, I mean, Grant, I get why. It's yeah, sort yeah, of a rhetorical question into the ether of like, yeah, you're greedy, you're power-hungry bastards. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I get it. I get it. But like, yeah, passing off to your son, you you get all the perks. Like, it's not like you're homeless. I assume mm-hmm. you still live in a castle. Um, I would totally want to do that. And then have 20 years, like, especially in the olden days when you didn't live long. Like, let your son take over. Enjoy a, ten, a decade of like doing great stuff. But whatever. So the Baron's willing to do this. And Baron, uh, he shook his head thinking it would have worked too if Hawat hadn't warned me. Well, let the Ooh. lad believe I saw the plot on my own. In a way, I did. Which <laughs> I, <laughs> Since yeah. I hired him, it's my exactly. success. <laughs> like, that's such a upper management thing to yes. say. Yeah. What a bitch. I've totally had a boss like that. We've had the same boss like that. Yeah. Oh, my God. And how, like, seamlessly they would say that out loud in a crowd <laughs> yeah, it's and, like... and think it's true. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so good. I'm so smart. <laughs> so, Fida, he questions Vlad, Vlad's honesty, um, but thinks he must mean it, basically. And seemingly on board, Fade asks, like, all right, what will we pledge to bind this oath? Like, yeah. this bargain. Um, and this is another great point of the Baron of like, well, Thufir will watch over you day and night, every action you take, and you'll take me on faith. <laughs> like, uh, or better yet, I just won't kill you, and you can go on living. Yeah. Every day you live is the day I've kept up my end of the bargain. <laughs> I'm like, damn. And uh, Fade kind of thinks on Hawat's role in all this, right? He's just like, ooh. What if I told him Hawat was involved in the ploy in the in the like slave arena those years ago? Right, it's like maybe I shouldn't say that. Well, no, what he thinks if he did, he's like, no, he'd likely say I was lying and attempt to discredit Hawat. No, the good Thufir is a mentat and has anticipated this moment. To where like, mm. yeah, your house is so untrustworthy and full of lies. Hawat will play you off of each other so easily. Why not? And the Baron can't be wrong. So like, are you really good? It's How- like, one of them died. I don't know. I was helping the other one. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love that. It's so like, fate is like, there's a futility in it. It's like, there's nothing I can do. Uh, so I just need to remain quiet. So fate, he has to accept this deal. He strikes this bargain with the Baron. A shaitan's bargain? <laughs> yeah, if there ever was one. <laughs> and uh, he wonders if uh, Hawat moved to the Baron's camp because he didn't reach out to Hawat about the attempt with the slave boy. So this assassin attempt that happened, Hawat wasn't in the know on. He wasn't consulted with. That's why Fade doesn't even think that Hawat would know about it. Oh. But Hawat did learn because Hawat is in control of the slave master. Because he got, an, or, um, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the slave. Uh, what did we get out of the arena? Did it, yeah, we, put the we got the slave master it, replaced. Oh, my God. That was the one who was killed at the beginning of this chapter. Yeah. Oh, I didn't make that connection. You didn't make right that connection? That, I didn't think of it till just now that it was slave master. Yeah. That was how. We're Hawa, going through them. That was Hawat's man. Yeah. Hawat just lost a spy. <laughs> Damn. That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That one just clicked for me right now. Or maybe now. the slave master's purpose was literally just for this moment. What do you, no, no, because Hawat isn't part of this plan. Maybe it was just so Hawat knew Fade would do something like this. Oh. That could be. 
Because, like, yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I believe he would think that many steps ahead. Right, right. And then I think you're right that, like, he would have put them there to get us to this point. Mm-hmm. That, that's the only reason that would be connected that way. That is super awesome. Uh, so that like, was... That's the level of security that now he has under his thumb, in a way. Having something over on Faith yeah. and knowing it. Kind of. But now that the Baron knows, what is it really... It's not really anything. It's like he has something over Eakin? Uh, well, no, I mean, he just knows that, like, oh, like, through fear, this is why through fear is valuable. He's able to see these kinds of things. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying Hawat had over Fade. You're saying Fade has this over Hawat? No, no, how, it's a level of security that Hawat has, mm-hmm. like, for the Baron's sake. Okay. Because, like, you know, the Baron doesn't even trust uh, Fade, in a way. Yes. But, like, at the same time, it's like, hey, Fade, like, you can do this. I can, I can help you do this. That plan was never for Fade. Maybe that it was, wasn't necessarily for the for Thufir either. I think it was for the Baron's sake. Maybe Thufir is going full Harkonnen at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Hawat did that whole thing to buy favor with the Baron somehow. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. Using the Slave Master ultimately got him an in with the Baron, which was important to him. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got that all sussed out. So... Fade, uh, and then having this thought of, you know, uh, Hawad, he's just, he tells the Baron, like, Hawad is a dangerous toy. And the Baron is satisfied that Hawad's deep emotions make him easy to control. That is what we can leverage. We can maneuver deep emotions and uh, bend them to our need. And the Baron thinks that Hawad is angrier at the Imperium for turning on Leto than for what the Harkonnens ever did. The Harkonnens were happenstance. He has a casual hatred towards the Harkonnens. It's the Emperor that now draws his ire as the one who turned on Leto and really brought the hammer down on him. I hadn't considered that uh, Thufir would want to fight against the Emperor in a Mm, way. Really? Yeah. I've actually told you a reason why he would way back. Yeah. Do you remember? No, I don't. Okay, good. Uh, it's going to come up next chapter okay. very blatantly, so I'm glad we'll actually have, uh, we'll unpack it there. Okay, okay. Uh, it's well, not... Does it have to do with, like, the super soldiers? Yeah, yeah, okay. it does. Yeah, yeah, I told you they made that little cadre. Right, right, right. Yeah, Lufir is the only one who, or one of the only ones who knows about that. Okay. Uh, but certainly the Baron wouldn't know about that, and how that is one of the influencing factors. Like, he's mm-hmm. not mad at, like, the, uh, or I guess, yeah, he's mad that the Emperor turned on him. The Baron doesn't understand why the Emperor turned on him, necessarily. He is under this other reasoning why, uh, this false reason. So knowing that we can bend uh, Hawat's emotions, or at least confident that we can, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Baron is telling him, like, I are telling Fade I have this under control. And uh, he's telling Fade that the family has greater goals than old rivalries. He's now really letting Fade know the grand scheme of things. Of Like, you know, you sat in on that old plan. Let me tell you, dear nephew, try the taste of that, the Baron thought. <laughs> Let him say to himself, the Emperor Fade Routha Harkonnen. Let him ask himself how much that's worth. Surely it must be worth the life of one old uncle who can make that dream come to pass. Just like, surely you can't kill me because I might make you Emperor in your lifetime. Yeah. Fade is basically in disbelief. Uh, one that how I could be leveraged at all to this, to this end. Uh, like, you know, we can't change this toy, but... Vlad is sure that Hawat is occupied with his revenge. You know, he's purely, like, driven by this now. Mm -hmm. Nothing will distract him. And because he's so focused on that, I can do all these other things around him. And uh, Fade tells him, I've learned much from Hawat, Fade Rautha agreed, and felt the truth of the words as he spoke them. But the more I learned, the more I feel we should dispose of him. And soon. 
Like, man, Fade, you are dead on. Like, yeah, dead on, but also like... Today. We wh- should get where was kid- that like two years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he saw more chances for himself. Yeah. I think we should really get Aiken to food back and be like, one more body, bud. Go get Hawa. <laughs> bring him down here. Show me the body. That's got to be done right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you got to bring it back. Every His hands are already bloody. Like, really? <laughs> we basically taught enough food fetch. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the Baron is telling Fade, like, ah, a sword is dangerous too, but for this one, we have the scabbard. Now, we can use it, and then we will sheath it when we are done. And Fade appreciates this metaphor, and he follows it up with one about the arena, uh, which I will remind you. It's a bad metaphor. Of his? Yeah. Yeah. Fade only has one thing, though. The arena. (laughs) They they made that point during his birthday. (laughs) It is the only thing he's good at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He sucks at everything. Um... But now, Mike... No, no, he's great oh. at cheops. <laughs> <laughs> Which he didn't play. Which he didn't play. But, but yes, he's allegedly a master at cheop. Oh, my, I would love if he just kept lying about that. Like his whole life. And then eventually he has to play a game. He doesn't even know the rules. <laughs> so what's the, what's the horse he do? So why don't you go first? Um, <laughs> but now, Mike, it's time for Fade's real punishment. We've punished yeah. the food. Now we've got to punish Fade. Uh, and he and the Baron are going to go down to the slave women's quarters, and Fade will kill all of them with his bare hands. Well, the Baron watches. Oh, naturally, Mike. He's got to see every dead body. We've oh gone over this God. how many times this chapter? And uh, I think that kind of brings us right to our closing uh, little chapters here. You got to... You will not refuse, the Baron said. What could you do if I refused, old man? Fade Routha asked himself. But he knew there might be some other punishment, perhaps a more subtle one, more brutal lever to bend him. I know you, Fade, the Baron said. You will not refuse. All right, Fade Routh thought. I need you now. I see that. The bargain's made. But I'll not always need you. And someday. Dot, dot, dot. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Right? I, uh, just seeing Fade, um... Uh, Takes a stance for himself, mm-hmm. stand up to his uncle, and to see the Baron have, like, you know, he got rid of his greatest rival, so to speak, but that wasn't his adversary. Yeah. Right? Well, that's not the person who was ever out to get him by and any means. Ultimately, though, this is also a lesson for Fade. Like, uh, there's still things you need to learn. I'm going to teach you how to actually be cruel and merciless. Mm-hmm. Like, rule with an iron fist. And, like, you do not make a mistake casually with me. Yes. Like, there's no, like, oh, uh-oh, it's black and white. You fucked up. Yeah, this is like, you better not shoot the devil in the back, and if you do, don't miss. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. That's a, yeah, that's a great quote. I think, uh, for me, at least, that's from uh, The Usual Suspects. Uh, I never watched that movie. Yeah, I know. That's like kind of a cinema black spot for me. Oh, it's so good. All right, I'll give it a whirl. I did watch that uh, Ford Ferrari film. Oh, what would you think of it? It was good. I enjoyed it a lot. You, you saw Dan Gurney? Yeah, I saw Dan Gurney. He was he was, that, uh, was the kid's name too. No, the, who's, he, who's the one who plays Dan Gurney? Yeah, 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 was uh whatever his son. No, son's name had, was a different name. Right? I got you. Yeah, no, he was like really early yeah. on in the film. That's like Gurney's taking the lead. And I'm like ah, <laughs> and then you're like oh, over for me. <laughs> done. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> All right, well, Mike, let's take a little break and refill. We got oh. this uh this bottle of rosé is not empty yet. Oh, fill me up. Oh, it's, it's good to be back in Gaty Prime. I'd mm-hmm. like to see what's going on with uh, Muad'Dib more, but first. 
I got something to tell you. Ooh, what do you got, Mike? Oh, I got to tell you and our audience that we partner with Audible. Yes. And right now they're offering our listeners a 30-day free trial when they visit audibletrial.com slash SpiceWorldPod. What do they get when they sign up? Well, when they sign up, they get one free credit that they can use to pick from one of thousands of titles like Dune. Oh, I'd highly recommend it. That was it, your first book, It was book, my right? first audiobook. And you'll get the that audiobook, mm-hmm. Keep It For Life. If you sign up with your Amazon Prime account, you get two credits instead. Oh, that is amazing. It doesn't matter what the price of the book is. Mm-hmm. One credit equals one audiobook. Yeah, you can get the longest book in the world. Yeah, I've uh, I've honestly uh, just been getting like the $50 books of late. Just be like, ah, money, money, money. It's, <laughs> it's all oh, mine. Oh, man. You know what, Mike? Don't always let that drive you. There's some really great, great gems out there. Yeah, I'm but I've sure. also binged like 200 hours of the Stormlight Saga. So like, I'm, <laughs> I'm in it. <laughs> I'm in it. <laughs> to the end, sure. <laughs> what are you reading, Derek? Ooh, oh, I actually, I think I told you about this book. So I've heard it um, through a couple of podcasts a few times, and I was like, you know what, I got to get the source book for this story. So okay. I picked up Charlatan by Pope Grock. Now, this is a book about Dr. J.R. Brinkley, who is a terrible, terrible man who used <laughs> to, uh, he took um, gland surgery was his big thing, where he could, took goat testicles and would put them inside of uh, men, and that was... <laughs> It was to increase their vitality, man. What? Yeah, it's 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 this weird time in the U.S. (laughs) Uh, He also is the one responsible for basically inventing talk radio, the infomercial, and he's the first person who put country music on the radio. Are you kidding me? Kid you not. It's like, he okay, he is responsible for killing people. We got to totally approach that. But the other stuff he does, it's like, it's so bad, it's funny. Uh, like the radio shit is good. He's a he's a con man the whole way through, mm-hmm. uh, and does these scams and like the scams that don't kill people. I get to laugh at and enjoy. <laughs> he made this crazy radio tower down in Mexico that was like a million hertz, so you could hear it in the Philippines. What? So the U.S. government tries to shut it down. We get the State Department involved. He's friends with the fucking vice president. He calls him up. The vice president calls the State Department and says, "Hey, knock it off." They leave his station alone. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the guy was like untouchable until this amazing doctor, uh, Dr. Fishburn, finally shut him down for good. So check out Charlatan by Pope Brock. That's kind of amazing. What, what, what happens at the end of 30 days? What if you don't like your... Oh, I thought you were going to say the end of the book. Uh, my, <laughs> at the end it? of 30 days, you get a, a courtesy email. Being like, hey, uh, before this is totally up, maybe you want to cancel and not get charged. I love it when companies do that. Mm-hmm. I have definitely spent way too much money on things that I forgot <laughs> to cancel. <Some> accidental <laughs> memberships, for sure. So it's nice that they do this. It's nice to see that they care. But hey... Why would you, though? Mm-hmm. I've kept mine going this whole time. I've kept mine going as well. But uh, do you say that if you do cancel, you get to keep that library? You get to keep that library. Everything mm-hmm. on there, yours for life, no matter what. Love it. And, hey, we know you understand the value of a good book. You read Dune. We're going to help you get a free audiobook when you visit audibletrial.com slash SpiceWorldPod. So get on over there, guys. Grab anything you want and let us know what you pick up with your free trial. That'd be awesome, too. At audibletrial.com slash SpiceWorldPod. <laughs> little splash of wine coming at me. <laughs> Let's get back to it. Now, Derek. What's up, man? New hey. Year, new me. Sure. Now, normally this is the part where we would go, hey, now, Mike, did you know blah, blah, blah? Is, is Not today. What? You're, you're I got it today. I got no thunder today. I went through the Dune Encyclopedia. I looked for those redacted sections, and I found a section that wasn't actually redacted at all. But oh. it was really interesting. Yeah, there's only two of those in there. So. <laughs> oh, God! I'm glad you found it. Uh, oh, okay. I'm just going to delete my notes then. What are, what are we doing? We're going to talk about Pyramid Chess. 
Oh, okay. It's, oh, you know what? Do we even touch on uh We have been building, or I built this up for you a few times. Yeah, before. yeah. This was the Cheops game that happened. The deadly Cheops game I, in Dune. I, I that, was a little disappointed. That there we, was no actual Cheops game? There was game. no Cheops game. It's just an innocent man murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's what happens when it uh, goes down in Harko. Uh, but I'm glad because like this, uh, this helps explain some things in the encyclopedia a bit too. Uh, in what way? Well, what, what are we talking? You'll find out. Okay. But so first off, I got a lot of different things to talk about. I started looking into three dimensional chess. I started looking into what Cheops means, the history of it, tying it all into the encyclopedia. I gotta tell you, we're going back to the sands to find out. Do do do. This so, is uh, pretty much how Dune started, you realize. He had one topic. It expanded yeah. to two, which became four. And then yeah, just kept I mean, going. That's just like, how it goes, man. He's like, no, I can't write my article because I got too much stuff. <laughs> now, you know from the Glossary game that Cheops is pyramid chess. Yes. Nine-level chess with the double objective of putting your queen at the apex and the opponent's king in check. Is that the definition from the back of the book? That's the verbatim definition. Yeah, okay. I, I was going to ask you, does it say like the nine? Mm. Uh, that I wouldn't have been able to say off the top of my head, but yep. yeah, of course. <laughs> I had to do some research, and the encyclopedia article, I, I've never looked at one before, so I did. it's, it's been How new for it me. Like? It was very cool. Lots of fake books that are put in as references oh, that wow. I'm just like, I don't know if I should read those or not. <laughs> like, it's not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> And because, uh, like, at first I'm like, oh, let's see what this book says, not realizing it's a fake book. No, <laughs> 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 I've told you it's a fake bibliography. Yep. Well, I thought that was at the end. <laughs> no, okay, okay. And isn't it the real confusing part is that it will have also translated by and like it has <laughs> yeah, notation yeah. The for edition like, with notated by. Yeah, yeah. It has the notation. It like, was it's really a, dumb. They really did the extra. Like, I think a librarian was involved. <laughs> but yeah, probably. Sorry. So there's there's a lot of like it assumes that there's a lot of famous Chiefs players that I should know about. Oh, yeah, of course. So uh, I'm probably going to butcher their names as well. Okay. Some of them are good space names. A lot of them aren't. Should I even venture? Are they real or are they all fake? They're all fake. Okay. Or you just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't search them or <laughs> I like, fuck I couldn't it. find it. If I don't find you, you're not real. Uh, but some of them, I think, are based off of real chess players. Oh, like historically? Yeah. Okay. Are there like historically significant chess players? Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, like... Um, I get that there would always be grandmasters and like people are great, but are there like a few like grandmaster is just a level of play. right, right. But yeah, I, I would use it as a baseline to be like that's a great chess player though. Oh well, yeah. yeah, and so what I want to follow up are there like patron saints of chess essentially? Like, are there a few people that just like really changed the game? Spassky, Bobby obviously Fi Bobby Fischer. Bobby yeah, Fischer yeah, is like the most famous, arguably movie. one of the best uh, chess players. Right, but really only because of the movie. For why he's so well known for like the culture and the zeitgeist. Oh yeah, yeah. I'd say I wouldn't know Bobby Fischer otherwise. Oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess I'm looking for people of like that stature with. Yeah, me. yeah. yeah. Uh, but he had he had his own cadre of things, and there's a couple similarities. But first off, all right, we're gonna talk about the encyclopedia. Okay. Now, I because I, I was doing Cheops, mm -hmm. I did a Control F on Cheops to <gasps> see. Yeah. First thing, it led me to like page two, the encyclopedia. Um, page two. So, is it within articles? No, it was an introduction by Frank Herbert. Oh, okay, yeah. It says in the introduction, uh, Frank teases that there's many secrets hidden in the Dune Chronicles, and they're answered here in this encyclopedia, such as who was Jean Butler? What are the hidden origins of the Spacing Guild? How does Cheops have something in common with the three body problem? 
I like how we've done those in order, essentially. Yeah. Like we're getting to the Tiams one now. All now, right. In the three-body problem. The three-body problem, that's not something that I was familiar with, and mm. I felt uh, embarrassed when I found out what it was because yeah. it's like a common uh, yeah, you should question. Be, you should really be shamed. <laughs> shame, <laughs> do you, Mike. Do, do, you shame. Know what, do you know what the three-body problem is? I had a loose grasp of it only because I know uh, it's the title of a sci-fi novel by a Chinese author that I think mm. came out like, um, oh, it's a few years ago, actually, at this point. It was like a decade. I always want to say a year ago. But that's like just <laughs> relative to when I learned that fact. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I'm old. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it is um, referring to three bodies and like, um, I want to say like a celestial equation. I feel like that's the wrong Th- word. That's but, the best um, way to view it. No, orbital mechanics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> celestial equation sounds like uh, the church's word for that. You take, Yeah, exactly. Take the momenta or like initial positions and velocities mm-hmm. of three bodies in physics and how they relate and move via one another. So gravitational pull, how they're moving, all that jazz. And you try and sort of uh, solve for their subsequent motion mm-hmm. according to Newton's laws. It's it's very complicated stuff. It doesn't actually have like a closed form solution that's just like, boom, 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 this equation makes it right. There's so many different factors in it that need to be accounted for. So it's just incredibly chaotic. It's hard to keep track of. Uh, Historically, the first three-body problem uh, to receive extended study was involving the moon, the earth, and the sun. Naturally. Which is kind of a great way to think about it and how those those move around the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Now, how's that related to chops? Because that Frank Herbert asked, like, hey, we're going to find out how it's related. Tell you what, he doesn't tell you. He just says, like, it's related. (laughs) Like, it's got something in common with it. That's all it is. I'm just like, oh, my God. I wanted to do, like, a small clap to the side. Good for you, man. Oh, That is just devious. It was really mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to throw that in the introduction. Yeah. I'm like... (laughs) I was like, he only listed like five things. Like, you'll learn this, you'll learn this, but like, he doesn't actually tell you. So no like, one tells me. But like, we can't put that on him. True. That's got to be on them. He, he read it though, or he skimmed it. <laughs> I don't know. I assume the introduction came first, and maybe he was like, "Do this." <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. But uh, can you guess how it's related? And I actually just put my own uh, guess on here. Um, uh, is it gonna come up in your description of it? Mm, I think when we get into uh, the mechanics of the game, you'll probably see my point of view. Okay. Um, In that case, if I was going to guess, you said it's nine levels. It's two factions. Um, uh, The three-body problem with Cheops, to me, I guess, would be the board, the white pieces, and the black pieces. Mm. Uh, And I guess I would see them as the three-body problem. I think you're looking at it too literal of a sense. Sure. And I think you need to look at it from the idea of why the three-body problem is so complicated. Okay. And that everything is pushed and pulled by different forces, so many forces and with such complexity that the three bodies are almost completely unpredictable from moment to moment. And even if we knew where they were prior to a turn... Yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, where there will be in the next turn, almost impossible to really flesh out. Love it. So what I was focusing on was the red herring there, and what it really is is it's like a physical representation of the universe. And just like how chaotic it can be. Like, you can have all the numbers, but you're still going to be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So we got three problems, or three body problems. Right. Love it. So uh, let's talk about 3D chess. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I learned a couple of things about 3D chess and the history of it, and... 
mainly I wanted to learn. I wanted to make a Cheops board. Yeah. But first I need to learn how to, the rules work. For 3D we, we wanted to make a Cheops board since the beginning. I know. Yeah. And I haven't found any nine tier. Well, I found one nine tier. Nine tier. But I, I, the more I learned about 3D chess, the more I realized it's an unrealistic way to play the game. Okay. Why, why is it unrealistic? Or this particular board. I think with, you can definitely do it. And I'll, I'll tell you my board that i'm going Whoa, to okay okay build up to a mic original did some did some research on it but so we're gonna start back in uh 1851 do we need time travel music or? all right give me a sec <laughs> <laughs> yeah 1851 <laughs> <laughs> legendary german chest master lionel kizaritsky is credited with the first three-dimensional chest design in I already said the 1851. <laughs> but we, we say it twice because it's old timey news. Um, I guess just to clarify, this is real, right? Not Dune. Not Dune. We, yeah, we, this is real. Okay, okay. So Lionel Kizaritsky, German chess master, designed this uh, variation of chess, mm-hmm. and he called it Kubik Shock. Who? Kubik Shock? Kubik Shock. Wait, Shock or Shock? Shock. Shock. Okay. Shock. 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 No, not at all. Shock. Shock. And it was a standard 8x8 chessboard featuring eight layers. Ooh. 8x8x8. That's damn. You want to take a gander as to how many spaces there are on that board? Uh, 64 times 8. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't can't answer it in that board. Uh (laughs) So it's a 512 spaces. Thank you. (laughs) And each layer was designated with a Greek symbol to allow moves between levels to be called and annotated. Because you know every every yeah uh, wait 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 so you had alpha uh, I don't know the eighth letter of the Greek alphabet I don't even think I can get there gamma no that'd be seventh damn that was pretty close that was close. <laughs> I'm just throwing out so but yeah so every every space say, in like, chess has a name wouldn't it be like alpha B four exactly to beta. exactly that that's really neat the massive scale and size of this. Mm-hmm. It offered chess masterminds to battle upon what is considered one of the largest chess boards in existence. Ooh, how uh, do you know how much space do you put between each layer? Uh, you'd want a solid amount for the piece, sure, and also for your hand to move across, yeah, and move it. So probably three times the size of the piece, so or I mean, the tallest possible piece. Right. So we're already looking at like ten inches. We're, I mean, honestly, you're looking at a small Christmas tree on a table. That's what I want to build up to. Like, yeah. how tall is this goddamn board? Do you I, would have to stand to play this game. At alternating times. You yeah. You have to sit, like, sit to play down. parts of the game. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. It's, like, it's a workout just playing <laughs> the game. Physical workout. Mental workout. It's the ultimate workout. <laughs> oh, I think Whoa. we could sell that. We could sell that. But the space, it was it was too much for some people. Like, ape, that's a lot. The games would go on forever. Yeah. Most lesser players were just confounded by the sheer amount of space on it. And uh, it wasn't until years later that inventor Ferdinand Mack refined this idea in 1907. He wanted a game that reflected modern warfare where enemies could attack from the air and the sea. So he started with an 8x8x8 playing field, but immediately realized that was just way too big. So he scaled it down. He went to five by five by five. Okay. I'm liking mm-hmm. that. Yeah. The way he had it is on the bottom layer and the top layer. Those are your opposite sides. So white starts on the bottom and black starts on the top on yep. opposite sides. Okay. The bottom layer, it has a front row and back row of five spaces. And then the second layer up also has two rows of pieces. Okay. So are you both on the middle layer? No, you're uh, on opposite layers. So... 
black is going to be on, we're going to call them, instead of uh, the Greek alphabet, he just labeled them as layer one, two, three, four, five. Okay. So layer one being the bottom, layer mm-hmm. five being the top. White starts on layers one and two. Oh, okay. I'm and black f- starts on layers five and four. Uh, yeah, you you did say a five by five by five. Yeah. I, for some reason, thought we were on a five by five by three. Nope. Okay. Yeah. So each one is occupying two layers. The middle layer is separating both layers. Exactly. Okay. This uh, this game, he called it Ramshock. 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 What's that mean? Well, did you guess what uh, cubic shock means? Uh, okay, so cube. Yep. Uh, sh- shock, then, is what I'm reaching for. Yeah. Is it uh, very phonetic in that like kind of uh, reach? Tiny bit. I want to say, like, uh, hit or attack. Maybe, like, cube attack? Uh, chess. Okay. Just shock chess. just means chess. Oh, okay. Cube chess. And yeah, then what cubic was the other chess. One? What was the other one? Ram shock. Ram shock. So I don't know. I don't know what that'd be. Space. 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 Uh, yeah. Naturally. So space chess. Space chess. Very good. So you start with uh, pieces on the bottom layers, or like I guess your uh, your team's two layers, mm-hmm. close to two layers. That's two rows of five on each one. That's twenty pieces. Now in normal game of chess, you only have sixteen pieces mm-hmm. to start with. Eight pawns, and then the eight, like, what we call the pieces, the real pieces. The, the only pieces that matter. Yeah, the nobles. <laughs> um, so we need to add four more. Yeah. So the obvious not? answer is for the the, fir- the front first rows. Row, front rows. Just add another pawn to each one. Yeah. Two more pawns. More pe- Easy. Know. Got it. Peasants. Now, what do you think they did for the next one? For the next one? We need wh- two more pieces. So is it, uh, I, is it like the rook and the bishop where I got two of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of on the side? Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you, uh, like, is it something new and it's different? It's a brand new piece meant specifically for three-dimensional chess. Okay. It's called the unicorn. The unicorn. The unicorn. How magical. It's pretty much, it looks exactly like the knight, but it's got a little horn on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm a little against that. <laughs> a different animal, man. You could have done anything. But, I get, uh, actually, I do see uh, a little bit of uh, pragmatism in that. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want to make a new piece. Like, <laughs> I can like, get extra nice some stuff. super glue yeah, and a yeah, toothpick. Exactly. done. Got it. <laughs> you put a little horn on a horn. <laughs> I get how this came to be now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, yeah. <laughs> Dude, you could have had popes. You could have bishops and popes. Like, I've, the amount of variants of chess I have looked at for this article they're it's all covered. There's archbishops. There's a fan there's fic sprites. for everybody. There's like there's a bajillion different types right, of pieces. Right. Hippogriffs. That's oh, a fun one. Yep, we've all played with hippogriffs. Yep, we've all played uh, with hippogriffs. Gargoyles, <laughs> dragons. The unicorn is interesting. It moves triagonally, which Ooh, is not like a, a direction is, I've had to think about at is all. Is it like trinocular vision? Yeah, very, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how does that work? If we imagine a normal chessboard mm-hmm. and how a bishop goes diagonally, sure. the unicorn does that, but only between layers. Okay, so like you're on a little white square, you got diagonally upward or yeah. downward. The best way to ima- square. exactly yeah. the best way to imagine it is if you're in a cube, if you're in one corner of the cube, you would go all the way to the opposite corner. Of yeah. That cube. Okay. Yeah, you're going through those corners. Yeah. So that's how you sort of uh, imagine the movement of the unicorn. <laughs> the unicorn. Of yes. the unicorn. Yes. But because of that, it can only move through layers. It can't actually move anywhere on its own layer. 
Okay. So it adds a new dimension to things. And that's why it's truly a three-dimensional piece. You can't play it on a 2D board. Mm -hmm. And then they they changed some of the rules for like bishops and uh, knights, how they function and move, uh, just relative to a three-dimensional space. Uh, So is every piece able to like transpose itself to a different plane? Everything can do that. With the bishop, they can go to the next plane, but like they have to stay on their own color. So they can only move one space over, more or less. Okay, yep. So that's three-dimensional chess. And okay. that was my... <laughs> I like how you say that. Like, and now we're done with introductions to chess because we got to get onto the real stuff. Pretty much, though. But yeah. like, I had learned this in order to like figure out like how would this function? How would this I, actually work? I think that primer is necessitated by mm. it. Uh, and that actually makes me really... like 3D chess seems so unattainable before. And uh, kind of like, uh, like you've built a computer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Building a computer is just a matter of just do it. It's really easy. It's, you just get the puzzle pieces together. Exactly. That's kind of like what playing chess is too. And then for, for some reason, I just still looked at pyramid chess or, um, ooh, I want to call it pyramid, but uh, mm. 3D chess and just be like, that's some other realm of like, you know, right. for the elites in their ivory towers. And now I'm just like, oh, we can play this. We can play this tomorrow. Like <laughs> half, of I mean, this we could, just, half of this is just you being like, this is the rule. <laughs> and yeah, like you make exactly. it up. Uh, I love it. The game is way more flexible than I think I ever gave it credit for mm-hmm. chess seems like such a rigid uh establishment kind of game but it's like no the rules are a myriad you can do anything you want in chess as long as you and the other person across from you like yeah. agrees on that's it. why there's so many different variants out there too yeah and we're going to talk about a couple of those variants within the encyclopedia right, let's do it but we're not going to get there yet <laughs> oh fuck it so let's stop okay <laughs> we know that it's nine level chess boom we got oh, we man, figured Mike, out the nine... i'm feeling the whiplash of this thing <laughs> this is what it feels like there. Yeah, nine level chess. So nine level chess. We've established we know how the three dimensions work now. Mm-hmm. We we know that to, for this board we need to have some sort of pyramid shape. That's fine. That's cool. We can suss that out how to do it. I found a couple different ways. I've got my own theory. Ooh. But let's talk about pyramids real quick. Sure. Let's talk about the name Cheops. <gasps> I think I remember what Cheops means, Mike. What does Cheops mean? <laughs> Isn't it a word for pyramid? <gasps> no. It's not the Egyptian word for pyramid? No, not at all. Ah, uh, damn. Okay. I don't know what Cheops means. It's not what is Cheops, it's Ooh. who is Cheops. Nice. And to that end, the it's atten- not Cheops. <gasps> it's it's Cheops. Emo- oh, and it's not like Emotib? It was Pharaoh Knum Khufu, which translated in Greek, translates to Cheops. And you know who worked for him? Hmm. Emotep. No, it wasn't Imhotep. He did uh, pyramid construction. Okay. As, he's, uh, in the, he's in the industry. Yeah, okay. but this was not his pyramid. Okay. Knum Khufu, Pharaoh Knum Khufu. Ooh, sorry, are you telling me like they started using that word at some point? Like it became synonymous with pyramid or Cheops? Cheops. Cheops. Or we're like, what does Cheops mean, I guess? Well, I'm going to tell it. Get to it. <laughs> I, I just did. Pharaoh Knum Khufu, Khufu, translated in Greek, is Cheops. Okay. Cheops is this Pharaoh. Okay. And he was known uh, to the ancient Greeks, Cheops. He was an ancient Egyptian monarch who was the second pharaoh of the fourth dynasty in the first half of the Old Kingdom period, which is about 26th century BC. He succeeded his father, Sniferu, as king. (laughs) Sniferu? Sniferu. (laughs) We'll let that one go. And he is generally accepted as having commissioned the Great Pyramid of Giza, one of the seven wonders of the world. Ooh. So the big one. Yeah, yeah, the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Was it the first one? I think it was. No, I think it's the other way around. I think yeah, they were I, subsequently bigger. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that's how the Egyptians roll. Yeah. <laughs> <I don't think, laughs> Build me a it. slightly smaller monument than my dad. Yeah. 
And that pyramid is actually called Akhmet Khufu. So the Greeks would call it that? Yeah, Akhmet Kiops. Although they would, they have a different name for the Akhmet part. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know sure, what the sure. Greek would be, but uh, Akhmet Khufu means Horizon of Khufu. Ooh, okay. The pyramid itself was just shy of 500 feet tall. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for almost four millennia. Damn. Millennia. You know it's lined up, uh, so when uh, one season when Orion starts to dip down, the stars like uh, line up with the pyramids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's just a matter of perspective, though, too. Like, I don't think that they actually planned that. Now, Khufu was his name at birth, but he changed it to Kanum Khufu, and Kanum was actually an Egyptian god. Oh, okay. He's described as the god of creation and growth. Uh, yeah, because then I, the thing I was thinking, you would start with like fertility, but I figured for well, to, yeah. get, to get to Cheops, though, I figured we were going to do warfare. Uh, gotcha. That's why Makes I leaned that. Makes but sense. yeah, otherwise, yeah, I think your first god is always going to be something that creates life of like, you need that as right. kind of fundamental. Sure. He's uh, originally the god of the source of the Nile. Oh, yeah. When the annual nice. floodings come in the Nile, brings in all the silt and clay and all the water around. He was thought to be the creator of the bodies of humans and their children. From clay, he made these children and then placed them in their mother's wombs. Can you consider of how many of the Egyptians would have never known what the source of the Nile was? Yeah. Just like that's something that's completely out of your just knowing. Yeah. It's impossible yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. I mean, that's why divinity is attributed to it in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why he was later described as a god of creation and growth, uh, having molded the other deities under him and has the title divine potter and lord of created things from himself. <laughs> awesome title. Yeah, sure. Also, the father of fathers is another one I've heard. Okay, that's a much simplified version of yeah, yeah, yeah. master potter, though. <laughs> Got a little lightning bolt scar. Yeah. <laughs> He's said to have a crocodile head. <gasps> Ooh, yeah. okay. I think I've seen him in a few statues. But uh, Khufu himself mm-hmm. also may have viewed himself as a divine creator, uh, a role already given to Kanum. As a consequence, the king connected Kanum's name with his own. So I already told you the Great Pyramid of Giza is called Akat Khufu, Horizon of Khufu. Mm-hmm. It's got three main chambers in it. Now... I thought this was really interesting. What do you got? Now, we thought about the game of Kiops on how why you need a queen to be the apex. Like that, that double win condition where mm-hmm. you need the queen at the apex putting the king in check. Yes. Why, why does that matter? We thought it was Benny Gesserit and like totally makes sense. I'm on board for that. I'm still on board for that. But this made me sort of think, what if? Oh. There's three chambers in there. There is the lower chamber, which housed a lot of goods and treasure. Uh-huh. The king's chamber, which would house the... You know, the pharaoh's body. Sure. And the queen's chamber. Oh, and it's at the top? Uh, it's not quite at the top, but okay. it is in the center of the pyramid. Okay. And if you're going to the center of the pyramid in terms of the game of Cheops, the apex is the very height and center of it. Okay. So the queen's chamber, from the, uh, the opening and entrance of the pyramid, you ascend up through the pyramid to the queen's chamber. Mm-hmm. And that's the first chamber you get to. So I thought that, like, ascending to the top... With the queen, maybe you can make a case for that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, the moment you've been waiting for, Derek. Woo! We're going to get into the encyclopedia now. Oh, thank God. We haven't even touched on Dune. Oh, my God. So, the following is a complete entry from Tekuk's Book of Games, believed to be published on Kaitan in (laughs) 101.90. Yes. Ooh, 101.90. Yeah. You know what that means. It's uh, just previous to this year. Three years, Mike. We just went two years into the future. Oh. It's 101.93 in the current year. 
Oh, very but yeah, exciting. you're right. The book did start in 101.91. So uh, I guess what we can infer from that is like, these are the rules of Kelps at the time of Dune. Yes, That's for sure. What, this is really De facto. So, Kiops is a game of intellectual skill, demanding an alert mind and a high order of concentration. It is played throughout the Old Imperium. Wait, Old Imperium? Mm-hmm. Do we call it the Old Imperium? Oh, I remember how before I didn't know what that was entirely? Yeah. I know what that is. Oh, really? We're in the Old Imperium. Oh! Carry on. This is why you can't read the encyclopedia. <laughs> Although in some remote parts, it has a few devotees. So I guess it's not really played all that much anymore at the time of this writing. Yeah, and this would be post-God Emperor. And like, uh, yeah. we're reading from the Rackus Horde. Right, right. So while the game's origins are lost in the mist of antiquity, the earliest reference to Kiops is found in a fragment of the poet Gorson, who lived only two generations after the Butlerian Jihad. Oh, oh, I feel like we missed a few years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's that's like 10,000 years. You know, <laughs> yes, if we think it was this time. Like 200 years before computers were exactly. destroyed. Exactly. We figured out chess. Partial descriptions of the game exist from the 3rd millennium. And uh-huh. A pictodisc from the 8th millennium shows a game in progress in the background of a diplomatic conference. Man, I haven't seen a pictodisc in years. I know. Perhaps even a Landsrad meeting with Emperor Istvan II. That's a good, good space name. Yeah, and He's that emperor, he was an aficionado of the game. By no means a player so, himself. So, oh, it was in a pictogram of him? Yeah. Uh, in, like, the background? In the background. That's great. That's, like, that's our clues to how early Ooh. this game is. Uh, did you get any pictures of Cheops while you were doing it? Uh, did you find the one Dune picture? I found one from the Dune card game. Oh, okay. There's, the Dune Encyclopedia has Dune uh, Cheops in the background. It, uh, I didn't see that. It's not a good looking board. Uh, it doesn't do it. Uh, but it is like a little chess board. You can see in the back of a room that uh, one of the characters is Does in. it have nine layers to it? No. No, it, oh. doesn't. it doesn't do it. It's not a great one, but it is clearly Cheops yeah. of like their attempt at it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was a nice little like, it's a good touch for the setting. Uh, you can't accept much from sci-fi. It was their miniseries. Well, it's funny because uh, the picture I saw was more or less a uh, rendition of the Star Trek 3D chess. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've I've seen... Uh, yeah. Oh, is it Artie LaForge? Who's the mm-hmm. the engineer? Not Artie, but LaForge. I can't remember. Ah, uh, but yeah, he play. I believe he plays with either Data or Riker. Can't, can't recall. Oh, I'm talking about the, the original. I'm talking about, like, Picard. <gasps> No, you're talking about Kirk. Ernest. <laughs> wow. Thanks for trying to confuse you got me. me. You got me. You got me. Uh, yeah. I thought you were trying to get me, no. Mike. I thought no, this, yeah. was, this is a barren like, uh, fade moment right here. <laughs> it's a game between Kirk and Spock. It's like okay. a three-dimensional yeah. ch- chessboard. It's a little wonky. It. Uh, it's in the next generation, though. Yeah. I just want to point out. But yeah, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's what they based it off of. But I think, I don't know. I think there's better ways to do it. Sure. Especially <laughs> now that I know some of these other rules. <laughs> yeah, you got some down. Exactly. Ooh, are we getting to, like, your chessboard now? No. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm, I'm eager. I'm uh, eager. Yeah, I'll finish it off there. But, so, uh, continuing on, mm-hmm. let's talk about another player. Another oh. famous player? Oh. Yeah. 
Raj of Narbog. Raj of Narbog. Raj of Narbog was the first player to gain wide recognition as a great master of the game. This sounds like the peasant that came up out of nowhere. <laughs> but like undeniably good. No, we'll get to that one. Damn it. Oh, they had backgrounds? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. I can't this, even make it up. A Raj of Narbog, his system play was copied by others in the period from uh, 9100 to 9700. And Nolavard suggests in his early manual, Kyop's Praxis that Raj was the first to use an undercheck. An undercheck? An undercheck. Ooh, so like met- from a bottom layer? Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I imagine that <laughs> means. Isn't that cool? It's like the uppercut of chess moves. <laughs> like, yeah, that's really yeah. awesome. <laughs> the game, in quotes, Little Chess, employing only a 64 squared monoplane <laughs> has flourished as a game for children. <laughs> Although adults occasionally engage in it as well. Can you see like little Sato car kids playing chess? <laughs> they flip the board, table flip. But like, that's our game of chess. Yeah, the yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just, and I imagine they're like, chess. they're like four when they play it. And Probably. Like, this yeah, is yeah, so yeah. silly. You want to be a mentat? You master this You don't game. move your back row. <laughs> Um, is now believed that Kyops uh, developed from Little Chess. Whoa. Uh, Harald Call's thesis, though, that Little Chess is merely a simplification of Kyops is it. generally discredited. You need, I knew you were going to go there, yeah. <laughs> Classic. It's like, what if? No, everyone's like, nah, nah. <laughs> we don't think so. Now, uh, the name Kyops is not that of the inventor of the game, as is sometimes supposed, Malat Rai Karen has suggested in his history of architectural form that Kyops was a prehistoric builder of monumental pyramids of unknown function, although his native planet has not at this writing been determined. Do, do, do. <laughs> so, yeah. That's fun. That's kind of a fun I, thing. I appreciate you taking this. And you know what? You didn't name drop. You were like, yeah, I'm going to take a step back from this and exactly. say it's obscured. Exactly. But honestly, the whole name of Kiops just comes from the fact that it's a pyramid-shaped board. Yeah, yeah. That's the only point of it whatsoever. That's, that's cool. And then I like that you trace Kiops to even that being a misnomer. Yeah. Of being like, it's a name that was applied to a pyramid, to a structure, essentially. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. And then we basically applied that to a geometric like <laughs> shape. It's all over the place. It's get, yeah, it's getting wild. But back to it. A man named Stecco is remembered as the winner of the first real tourney of consequence. Ooh. In 9,340, he defeated... That was the first tourney of consequence. Yeah, that's the first tourney of consequence. Okay. In all human history. <laughs> so, maybe 240 years after the first undercheck? Sure, sure. That's <laughs> <laughs> when we knew this game was real. I think, here's the thing, I haven't been able to find too much more on it, but I think tourney of consequence, like uh, great tourneys... Mm-hmm. These are big competitions, like planet-wide competitions. Sure. So they, they are supposed to be major things. So I think this was the first real major tournament that they held. Okay. Okay. Um, he defeated all competitors and remained the greatest player until his death. He's noted as the first of many fine players who were slaves. The hobby of many wealthy players has been to acquire skilled slave players and organize them into teams to compete with other such teams. Oh, that is sadistic and awful. I mean, it's just like owning a football team. Wow. (laughs) Hey, they're under contract there. They're yours. You know, Mike, controversial, but true. Yeah. But true. And man, they get concussions. But hey, Baron Uh, just wants a strong team. But like, so is, is there a realistic parallel to that? Was that something that was like... Ever done by nobles? 
I don't know if it was. I couldn't find it. It doesn't. On that. It doesn't well, seem I mean, like crazy to well, me. Not really, because if you think about Rome and gladiators, that was more or less the same thing. No, no, no. That was very different. I think uh, where like the mental exercise versus like risking your life. I think that's where the difference is for me. I don't know. We no, no, my no, first no. Keops game that I saw, someone died. Someone died. <laughs> but. The, the point is that you have your slaves and you use them as, like, uh, they represent my house for this form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. That's very Roman. Yeah. Like you would have villas basically just training uh, gladiators from slaves and sending them out. Yeah, yeah, but do you still not see the, the difference, though, is, like, the, what you're putting on the line. Like, I see why the noble would never step into the ring. I don't want to die. The embarrassment of a loss is very different from death. What's the Baron's number one rule? I don't even... Don't dirty your own hands, man. Yeah. Yeah. But take a victory. You just want to... No, wait. That that completely is contradicting. Mike, he sent his fucking nephew into the ring. Yeah, so? Into the arena. Not his hands. Not... Yeah, Yeah, fuck you. Not not his baby hands. But all I'm saying is that, like, I think there is just something... Because this is a mental game where I feel like there's more that reflects on you for winning versus, like, if you just want a battle, so to speak. Maybe, and that maybe. there's more to get from it. And that it seems, like, weirder that that would be what you would get the crew for. But at the same time, I get why if you have money and you can, right, right, you just right. do this. I mean, I think you're maybe thinking too hard into the slave aspect. You wanted a parallel? Here's another parallel. During the Cold War, U.S. and Russia hated each other. We wanted to be the best. We wanted to prove it. Hockey was a big thing. You remember that movie Miracle, right? Uh, no, clearly not. Did we play the... the like, U- are you kidding me? No, no, this is all news to me. The U.S. and Russian teams? Yeah. And I think it was... Oh, God, I need to look up the date. Don't worry, but just tell me what happened, I guess. No, it's just that like no one could beat the Russians in hockey. They were just like the best. Why didn't we get the Canadians involved? They couldn't do it either. The Wayne Gretzky cannot beat them. <laughs> He wasn't there. Yeah. But uh, no, it was a big deal when like US was able to, the US team was able to beat Russia. I guess I wasn't putting house honor at the level of national honor. Mm-hmm. I, think I'm, I think I'm there. I'm on board. No, it's the same as the Olympics in a way. It's that's, just like, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, I'm saying that's the metaphor that yeah. like, I, I get that one. That one I understand. And now you've kind of connected the two for me. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, right with you. Yeah, not, not that, uh, I don't think, uh, yeah. It's like any sports team, honestly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, your city votes for your players. Mm-hmm. Looking back at the Baron, maybe he just, maybe he did want a strong chess team. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't lying. We, we can't afford a little honesty in there. players. Yeah, yeah. Get it's just like, he's not on the team, but like everyone should be ready to be drafted <laughs> yeah. for the Chiefs team. We can't afford to have such bad players. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I think they, they wrote this probably specifically because of that little quote there. Yes. Even though it's not the intention of that, but... Even so, I think we can draw parallels from our own history as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have to think about in uh, when this was written, like we were just sort of getting like out of that time, or we were in that time frame more or less. Yeah, yeah, Cold yeah. War. Love so it. when did Miracle come out? Or wait, when the real story happened? Uh, why don't you look it up? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. 1980. All right, so it is in time for this article. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. So that's pretty cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- if you- have you ever seen that film? No, I don't think I have. Oh, I highly recommend it. Is it as good as the Mighty Ducks? Better. Interesting. Even? Better. Yeah. Okay. So Emilio Estevez shows up at some point. Yeah. And gives no. a, ra- <laughs> a rousing speech in the locker room. No, it, it does have one of the best locker room speeches though. 
<laughs> God damn it. You can't have a great sports movie without a good locker, locker room yeah. speech. Yeah, yeah, it's right in there. <laughs> Just think of like Friday Night Lights in my head. <laughs> but uh, that was Stecco. He came okay. from Humble Beginnings. Yeah, no. hell yeah. Modern play dates from the career of Engar Omal in 9700. Okay. In his day, reversionary action, never previously employed, became a standard part of the game. And triangulation and eclipses date back from his period as well. Is that a 3D chess term? Um, Eclipsing. Eclipsing, actually, I had no idea. I tried so hard. I found the terms underposting and eclipsing uh, in the article, and I think they have to do with your position of your pieces and how often you use them. So underposting, I think, would be having too many pieces under on the lower layers of the pyramid, and eclipsing would be having too many pieces above. Okay. Uh, that's just my, my guess. Interpretation. Yeah. Sure, sure. And certainly, I would just say, like, the inclination I had was... Uh getting a piece like over another one and it, but i didn't know if that gave you some strategic kind of advantage that you were going to elaborate on but i think your inclination seems. i mean it could allow for like I, a gambit or something but yeah uh, but i'm kind of like if those were two just general phrases i think your definitions are kind of uh convincing right. to me now triangulation this is a tactic that's used in chess Ooh, okay uh and it's literally just to put one's opponent into a position where it's disadvantaged uh dis- disadvantageous to move Okay. So it's uh it's also considered calling or it's also called losing tempo or losing a move. I wonder then if the eclipsing and the undertaking are moving so that their pieces can't move. I think up it's or down. the same as triangulation, but just like applying it to different vertices now. Somewhere yeah, yeah. Exactly. Emphasizing those ends. Sure. Um and I think the the idea being, hey, if you eclipse too much like, you're uh, in a spot where too many people can snipe you. Like, you're at a high point in the game. You're in the center where it's a strong point, but also a vulnerable point. Yeah. Right in the middle of the board. Whereas uh, underposting would be, like, it is important to have pieces up there. So not getting enough up there, like, by the end of the game is really bad for you. Like, mm-hmm. it's understaffed. It's underposted. That's, the, that's my interpretation of it. Anywho. I like, there's yeah yeah there's it, a lot. it doesn't go into it any further than that there's a lot you can kind of dig into it maybe you now even as you just said that and calling it under posted like that i'm yeah. like maybe that is like maybe eclipse is you're too much on one any one layer maybe under posting is you're not represented on all of them entirely yeah. possible Who knows? but keep going um and uh from this time the only uh major development is something called the semi-check no what's the semi-check Damn, awesome, Frank. You're nailing this one. <laughs> I think it has to do with uh, putting your pieces in a position where the king can't move out of it, but it's not in check yet. Got you. Yeah. So that way all yes. you need to do is move one piece into that position. I have every square it. around you is check. Yeah, yeah. But you're not. It's like, I just need to move one piece to put the king in check, and you can't move now. I like it. That's, that's my interpretation. I don't actually know. Uh, that was one... That was actually one of the few terms I didn't look up. That's very cool. If anyone has an answer for that, please let me know. Now, uh, since Anger Omal, uh, for the past century or a little more, controversy has raged over the relative merits of, quote, the old-fashioned formational play and the later and modern linear play. Many masters tried to effect a compromise between these two, producing what they called the eclectic style. The real test of any style lies in the play, however, and so far, linear play wins more master tourneys, while informal or casual play is traditionally or usually formational. 
Now, in the encyclopedia, it says formational linear are styles of play. Mm-hmm. I looked into it. They're actually chess variants. They're different ways to play the game. In Not, 3D or just in traditional? In traditional 2D. Okay. Well, I hold my tongue on that last part. Got, yeah. Just I, more of a traditional play. Yeah, yeah, okay. But yeah, like, yeah. They're just like, <laughs> yeah. hey, let's play the game of chess, but here's the new rule set. Okay. It's not like, here's my style. It's not like the Sicilian defense or anything like that. That's what I would attribute to, like, a style of play. Yeah, This yeah, is yeah. just, like, here's the new, like, game variant we're playing. I, I, get, I get the distinction that you so, made there. So, in our chess, formational is a variant where each player makes eight moves before the game starts. Okay. So, white. Do uh, you alternate? Nope. Actually, you uh, traditionally, you write down what your moves are going to be. You seal them up, Ooh. and then white makes their moves, and then black makes their moves, and then white goes first. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. It just sets up what, a, what if a piece is taken in that time? Or the rule is that you cannot cross the center line. Gotcha. Okay. I did it. That, uh, that's an important piece yeah, of information. Yeah, it is. I'm but, like, uh, what if you got them in check in the four-base <laughs> move? Like, But it's just an interesting way to play where, like, like those I first like it, eight, It's what yeah. I would call that in, like, any game is, like, variable start. That's, that's 16 moves where uh, you don't... Yeah, it is uh, a variable start. Yeah, well, like, well, like I told you, by the fourth move, it gets to, like, two billion. Yeah. By the eighth move, it's game over. Like, it's a total... You can't anticipate Right. That. And this way, like, you have no idea what they're going to be doing. Yep. And they have no idea what you're going to be doing. So you have to... You set up sort of, like, this is the way I like to play. Now, linear chess. Yeah. This is weird. It's this just, is the one that wins more often in this world, this universe. Uh, yes. In the tournaments. According yeah, yeah. to them. Now, that's the style. For the variant... Yeah. It's weird, man. It's one row. It's Can a we- one by, like... 16 or one by uh yeah i think it's like one by 16 it varies from game to game but uh it's one row you have like your rook can move like one space your bishop can move like two spaces your knight goes two spaces and then one space it's really weird but it's a a one dimensional chess game okay i'm just confused yeah is it it fun is it hard Mm. i don't know i've never played it but apparently it's uh it's a way to play the game I, I, I'm interested. I, I'm going to say I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I'd, tr- I'd try it out. So, now we got those styles. Several types of erroneous play are usually found among beginners. The most common is undoubtedly excessive verticality. Sure. Basically, just like, it's a pyramid. I want to climb it. Let's I'm go going. up. Let's go. Let's keep going. Yeah. So, Morgan, I guess this is a famous chess player or writer, frequently entertained onlookers with amusing demonstrations of this weakness, and some of his traps are memorized early by every learner of the game. Ah, very It's like good. the scholar's checkmate. Yeah, yeah. It's like the three-turn, get yeah, done. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the one couple move where opening that bishop up, it, you exactly, don't want to do it. Exactly. Lays a lane right to your king. Now, other common errors are underposting the queen, a premature eclipse, and allowing the opponent to control two contradiagonals. Yes. Yeah. So sure. it just, you know. Opposite diagonal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, even the great Garen Akbar committed a premature eclipse and thereby <gasps> lost a great tourney when he was at the height of his skill. You know, usually it's only the younger players that have a premature <laughs> eclipse, but I'm glad it happens down the road. That Akbar was a trap. Admiral Akbar did get into a trap. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh, and extensive literature. I, you know, I wonder if that is why he wrote that. I don't it's know. an eclipse. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's a trap for beginners. <laughs> I think there's something there. There's something there, I there's think. something there. Now, an extensive literature of the game exists. Mm. Beginning with the earliest known study, Croyd's Plain Pyramid Chess, 
And there are numerous manuals of instruction, the most popular being Divin's Kiop's How-To. And many intensive examinations of selected features of the game have also been published. Since the rise of the great attorneys, there has been a flood of published records of games of all the master players. Conventions for friendly games may differ from world to world, such as whether the rook recoil counts as one move or two, <laughs> but official matters play in governed by the inter- um, but official matters play is governed by the interplanetary Kiops code. In its Hell present yeah. form its present form dates from 8342, so it hasn't changed much. Mm-mm. Um, and the last thing that changed is, uh, the pawn's ability to capture on Gravisant. On Gravisant? Yeah. What is that? Or this is when they were allowed. Oh, it just means that pawns can capture like vertically. Gotcha. When they ascend, they can capture. Oh, okay. Which is actually the rule in 3D chess. Because they move diagonally when they capture, when they move up, right? So they would capture. Yeah, yeah. Um, for the rook recoil, my best guess for that um, is moving along with like multiple planes, like on multiple dimensions at the same time. Okay, are you familiar with um, when you uh, rook your king? Uh, castling, yeah, yeah, castling. Thank you. That's kind of what that struck me as. Oh yeah, maybe that's a good way to put it. Like that seems like a rook recoil. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't know. Hmm. Maybe. It's the only move that's so unique to a rook. That's right, right. To me. Yeah, un- yeah. Honestly, the rules make no sense to me still so far. Castling doesn't fucking make sense to <laughs> oh, me. Oh, castling makes when sense. When my dad like told me that, I was like, you're making that up. No, like, no. It's- you can't add that rule in. <laughs> well, you know, we've been pl- like, great. You know, I started playing with my dad when I was like six, Mike. And you don't, you're not going to open with like, cheater. and you can castle. But one day, he's like, and this is the castle. I'm like, mm, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you never did that before, old man. <laughs> I think you're just a sore loser. Yeah. <laughs> King me. <laughs> yeah. If we're doing anything. <laughs> yeah. Now, players who have won at least one tourney are termed master players and are enrolled as members of the Kiops Guild, which conducts Ooh. all tourneys and ranks the masters. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. It's a big thing in the Imperium. I mean, we do the same thing with like the rankings that we have. Like, yeah. They're just as, uh, it's an ESL score. Yeah, everyone has uh, a score. Tied to it. But I Except think for it's... Grand Masters. What's that? Uh, I mean, they do have to be at a certain point, and I think you would have to be in order to get the rank of Grandmaster, because you're Grandmaster when you can defeat another Grandmaster. Oh, but how did we get the first Grandmaster? We'll never tell. Oh. <laughs> Time travel. <laughs> Time travel. <laughs> yeah, it's the, only, it's the only answer. Now, aerial, regional, and zonal tourneys are held fairly frequently, but the great tourneys are held once every 10 standard years. The great tourneys are limited to the highest-ranking world masters, and all qualified players must compete. If, you, if you're a master, you have to go to this tournament every 10 years. If you don't, are you just stripped of your title? Well, only twice in history has a qualified player failed to compete. In so you tournament. have my answer, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what happened twice in history? Uh, in each case, they were promptly reduced in relative standing, while the best player who had failed to qualify was promoted to take their place. That last it's part a slap on the wrist, it seems. Wait, wait, I get the demotion. I don't feel like you promote somebody. I guess it's like there's a hundred like you know fancy yeah. jackets. Yeah, that just seems. We to had them made. Someone's got to wear them. We do have a quota. Are you sure? Uh, this isn't the top ninety-eight. The top one hundred. Damn yeah. it! We got to keep that number exactly. So um, the winner of the great tourney is called the Shaw Master. 
until the title is lost in a match or in the next great tourney. Very cool. So Shaw Master Shaw, like Potty Shaw, mm-hmm. means, uh, do you recall what that means? I is think it, it's, uh, yeah, it'd be Master. Yeah, exactly. Which would go in for like Grandmaster and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. So the Master Master, Shaw Master. Shaw Master. <laughs> nice. That's like the title of the best player for the next 10 years or until you lose a game. Yeah. Which is kind of awesome, actually. I like that. It's a title that can be transferred in between. Exactly. Yeah. You would track that man down. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Kiops is a game that appeals to all. Every habitat has produced master players of high caliber. Slaves have attained the Galactic Championship. Women have likewise held the championship, even though male masters outnumber female masters by about five to one. I don't know why they had to add that. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, you it was really weird. You didn't need to say that. Exactly. You could have just said the women barn had stopped. Mm. Of the Shaw mistresses. Oh, <laughs> okay. Interesting. Making up for that last line. Of the Shaw mistresses, the most memorable is Victoria Lady Wong, who successfully defended her title for 11 years before losing to the incomparable York Davin. In ten one forty one. Now I, I am a Davin stan. So. Yeah, I think we we heard something about that name already, didn't we? I don't recall. I think I mentioned it briefly. In what manner? In the most popular uh, instructional material being Davin's Kiops How To. <gasps> oh shit! Yeah, nice, nice callback. Yeah, yeah. So he is like the current greatest player. Well, among oh. recent Shaw Masters, some have died undefeated, like Garen Akbar. Awesome. And one uh, Hyret Torin. One was stripped of his title for refusal to compete in a great tourney. So that's one of the two. Okay. Possibly the greatest player of all time, York Davin, held the title from 10141 until 10173 when he retired and gave up the game, complaining of a lack of adequate competition. Ooh, sick burn! <laughs> he was a mentat. I bet you he was a mentat. He subsequently devoted his life to the contemplation of the essence of the game. Ah, you high-minded son. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. His conclusions, although never published, seem to indicate the game has too much in common with the three-body problem. It's just too chaotic. Oh, okay. Interest readers are referred to his 12, spe- uh, 12 Steps to the Apex, or Kiop's Mastery. And of course, with Kiop's Mastery, you want the addition with annotations of the game by Boreat Riava Wish. Especially helpful. Especially. And uh, that's what I got on Kiop's. Oh, Mike. Well done, sir. I, I feel this is a cool seat to be in. Isn't I it like awesome? It. Yeah. You feel power. I do. I no. do. I realized, too, that like this was a really long one. It's because I've never done one of these fancy deep dives. That's how they always end up. Uh, I just want to reflect back that him addressing the three-body problem as a reason to like back away from the game, I feel like it's cowardice. Because like the idea of a deterministic universe makes sense. Like, hey, if we just knew every variable, I think we could do it. And we could revert, you know, we'd figure everything out backwards and forwards. But it's like, no, guy, it's just there's too much. And there's so much you don't understand that you don't understand. Right. But for me, I would say, like, that's still the reason why you have to approach it. And all the more reason right. to approach it. Especially if you it. understand it from this new perspective. It's like, yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't have shut down from Cheops. That should have just opened a new horizon for you and let you know that there's no limit to the game. Right. I think he's supposed to be uh, modeled after Bobby Fischer because he just, like, quit the game. Yeah. So for my version of Cheops or mm-hmm. Kiops, yeah. Um, I imagine 
Uh, I like the idea of the 10 pieces with like the two extra pawns and mm-hmm. the two unicorns. I think the unicorns <laughs> are three unicorns. dimensions. It's a cool idea. Yes. So I think I would do uh, sort of a weird combination of those first two I told you about, the 8 by 8 by 8 and the 5 by 5 by 5 Oh. So I would have uh, three layers of 10 by 10 Okay. I would have three layers of 8 by 8 and I would have uh, three layers of 6 by 6 and these are all like stacked on top of exactly, each other. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you could even shorten that a little bit if you wanted to. It uh, either way works, I guess. Okay. But because uh, I know like the eight by eight by eight was kind of like intense. I just think the idea that uh, you do need to make it somewhat pyramid shaped in you order for that, it to be yeah, pyramid chest. You need that regression in exactly. size. Sure. But you need to have enough space on the top so that like you are capable of checking, putting a king in check with a queen. Yeah. So you can actually move. So that's why I think the. More than a two by two, more than a four by four. You could probably do a four by four. I can see a four by four kind of working, I guess. Yeah, but like it's so much to the board that you're incapable of affecting at the same time. So if you put your king here, they can't possibly win. Well, he's not going to the top. The queen is the only one going up to the top, though, right? Yeah, but if you say, uh, I put my king on um, H2, which would be not quite the corner, just shy of it. That doesn't actually provide a spot that the queen can provide check-in, usually. Okay. Or, like, I guess it is possible, but it's very difficult. Sure, sure. That's something you need to account for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we could play it. We could try a couple different things, but I really want to make this board. I think I would want to start with three layers before we go on to nine layers of, like, I think we're going to cut out some paper and just pretend they're stacked on top of each other. Yeah, you're going to break my brain uh, for the first game, (laughs) for sure. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm not going to... play a regular game before we do that. Like, (laughs) and we stop when my nose starts bleeding. Yeah, probably. I'm just like, hey, that's it. That's enough. You just want to be like, Devon? (laughs) I do. You can do it. So bad. All right, so that brings me to, uh, I guess... This is tough. What, Maybe, do, what do we do here, Mike? I don't know. Um, I guess Gurney, Gurney, Gurney is done. Yeah. I guess I could cook up a Gurney real quick. Oh, I don't know. Oh, wait, you did Gurneys? Wait, what? Okay. I I got something ready, Mike. What? I got three Halleks ready. Wait, what? I kind of went, I, I thought I knew what I was doing. When I got down, I sat here. I was like, that's wrong. <laughs> so if you could just sit with me, if you're going to take a fucking deep dive, why don't you join me for a little game I'm going to call Halleck, Halleck, Halleck. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Where Mike, every once in a fucking great while, I look up some Halleck's, I bring them together, and you tell me who took it off the best. Oh, God. Who took it off? <laughs> <laughs> You like really like went on the opposite end here. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Took this, I took this train and ran with it. <laughs> I think you copied my notes. So, Mike, I got for you Gurney Halleck, a troubadour warrior and war master for the Atreides. Okay. One Fitz Green Halleck, a famous poet known as the American Byron. <laughs> Byron? Uh, like the um, Lord Byron, the English poet. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Renown. Okay. And then I have Mindy Halleck. Author and three-time motherfucking cancer survivor. Ooh. She's just a champ, and I feel like I have to mention that. All right, so what's her, her claim to fame? Is she She's an, an author as well. She wrote author, uh, the novel Return to Sender, which actually I think came out in uh, 2015. Okay. She's pretty contemporary with awesome. us. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and she became an author later in life. She's just really an inspiring figure Perfect. that I had to include for Halleck. And who was the, the second one? Fitz Green Halleck. Fitz Green. He's a famous poet from okay. the 1800s. He was born in Connecticut and then moved to New York. Okay, okay. And then, of course, Gurney Halleck. All right. So Gurney, Fitzgreen, and Mindy. So I have 
troubadour. Uh, so basically, a songwriter, a poet, and an author. Oh my god! I knocked them every Did medium. Did you try up. that? I I intentionally for Mindy. Okay. I found the right one. I'm okay. Like, I, well, clearly, I needed a writer for the game. Okay. Okay. Uh, but then once I found she was an author, I was, that actually works out great for this whole setup. So, are you ready, Mike? Let's do it. I got one for you. Uh, <clears throat> let me try this out. Home of the Percy's high-born race, home of their beautiful and brave, alike their birth and burial place, their cradle and their grave. Still sternly o'er the castle gate, their house's lion stands in state, as in his proud departed hours, and warriors frown in stone on high, and feudal banners float the sky above his princely towers. Damn. That's a good one. I was pretty happy with all this. That was really good. Um, okay. I'm going to go ahead and rule out Gurney Halleck because I think I went through most of Gurney's material already. Oh, oh you think you're just familiar yeah, enough? I think, you think I, you got it? I don't think you can pull one over on me with Gurney. Okay. That's an interesting place yeah. to take. Bold, I, uh, as I'll say. Yeah. I, I, so, uh, oh, was it Mindy and... Mindy and, uh, oh, the other guy had a gnarly name of uh, Fitz Green. Fitz Green. Gosh. I see, I don't really know what Mindy's things are about. With James Gurney, I knew dinosaurs. You knew dinosaurs, yep. But uh, Return to Sender. I'll I tell have... you a little bit about her book afterwards. Sure, sure. sure. I want to say, like, it definitely was poetic. Mm-hmm. And so I want to go with Fitz Green. But it was, like, it changed uh, its form quite a bit throughout it. So I don't think it was the... I don't think it was quite like a poet necessarily. I think it was a writer like uh-huh. trying to make something poetic. Okay. So probably, I think it's something from one of Mindy's books. I'm going to go with Mindy. Are Alec. you, are you like deconstructing how you would put a James Gurney quote into this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, if I were doing this, I would shift this, shift this. I think it's Mindy Halleck. Well, Mindy Halleck's novel, Return to Sender, published in 2015, is about a, a veteran of the Korean War who, oh. uh, it is like kind of scars him. He becomes an, a, like an alcoholic priest and he crosses paths with a serial killer. And that has nothing to do with this poem. I read you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Fitz Green. It was Fitz Green. Ah! Halleck in the, the poem is called Alnwick castle, which is a real castle right, in right. England. Uh, I'm sorry. It may be France. He spent some time there uh, for it. But yeah, Fitz Green Halleck. Oh, I overthought and, it. I overthought well, it. Well, no, what you did cue on, though, was you said the structure changed a little bit, and that's that the rhyme scheme changes mid-verse. Yeah. It goes A, B, A, B, and then it's A, B, C, A, B, C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because of three lines on the very bottom Dang. of it. Yeah. So great job, though, Mike. I can tell you a little bit of just uh, Fitz Green. Uh, his poetry was popular and widely read, but it had, it fell out of favor uh, later in his career. Mm-hmm. It's since been studied uh, in the late 20th century for its homosexual themes and insight into 19th century society. Oh. He ended up writing a bunch of satires with the man who they think was his lover. Oh. Um, and then, oddly enough, so his lover had a wife. After his lover passed away, his wife... The wife wanted to marry him. He didn't marry her, though, and she oh. just dies. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it doesn't go. It's Alec. Oh, no, it sounds like they were friends. Like, I just, <laughs> okay, like, he, okay. he was just never down to do that. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. It was very like, I just thought it was like a weird that she even wanted to. But it sounds like <laughs> there's just like a big group thing going on yeah. there. Uh, at the age of two, the young Halleck suffered a hearing loss when two soldiers fired off their guns next to his left ear. <laughs> oh, no. That is just a bit of like, that sucks, man. <laughs> yeah. 
now, Mindy Halleck, I told you, a uh, three-time cancer survivor. Uh, and then she grew up in the Oregon coast in the 1950s. Oh. When Frank was doing this shit. Wow. That was when she was born and That's growing kinda up. That's kind of cool. Uh, and so she is the daughter of a celebrated beauty queen and a uh, retired soldier. And she grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so that was kind of cool. I'm just Very so good. So, Mike, you uh, you came pretty close. I loved your assessment of the Gurney quote. Mm-hmm. And like all good Gurney games, I figured I'd follow this up with a bonus Gurney. <gasps> I figured I'd scrape the bur- barrel and Wait, pull bon- out a Gurney. Is gir- it a bonus Gurney or bonus oh. Halleck? Nope, it's a Halleck, all right. <laughs> I didn't bring any Gurneys today. <laughs> you brought Gurney Halleck? Yeah, that's right. I brought, like, well, you're wrong on all accounts. I, I brought the, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't even have that. But, uh, so... This was kind of a struggle for me. I was like, what am I going to tell Mike? What am I going to do? <laughs> and then it's like, wait, I know the perfect story. There's an article. Uh, I'd heard it a while ago, and I'm glad I touched back on it. And it is called The Secret War Between Grant and Halleck. Oh. Yeah. We're, do you have any idea where we're going? Is it Ulysses Grant? It is. The one and the same. We're going to be talking Lincoln Grant the Civil War. We got oh some shit to go through. And the cattiest, most mean girl general of all time, Mike. <laughs> Is a Halleck. There was, there's, uh, was, did Halleck know Lincoln? Uh, yes, he did. Ah! Yep. Lincoln gave him a promotion personally. No way. Oh, yeah. All let's, right, look. Let's, let's get into it. Yeah. The year, 1862, February. A handsome man steps off a boat. <laughs> a handsome that's, man. That's my Golden Girls reference. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you. Um, no, it's uh, General Ulysses S. Grant. He has just won an amazing victory in the South, and he got Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner to surrender to him. And he surrendered to, like, um, this really um, direct message from Grant that uh, basically this was the way the Unionists wanted all their generals to talk to rebel commanders. And Buckner had asked Grant, he had known Grant, uh, he even refers to him as Sam, his good friend Sam, coming up, of just like, you know, these terms for surrender, we can negotiate this. And Grant sent back the following message. Sir, yours of this date proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir. Yours respectfully, your observant servant, U.S. uh, Grant Brigadier General. Okay. I don't know why you signed it off, I am sir. That seemed like <laughs> I weird. I am sir. But like, he just told Was like, he not uh, referred to as sir? I don't know what, but, but it starts with that and it ends with I yeah. am sir. Was this like, I just received your thing? Yeah, it's just received. Uh, Maybe it didn't have like an appropriate title or no, something? No, no, I, I think it's a matter of like, uh, it's got to be something with telegraphs and shit. Of oh, like maybe. sending messages or dictating. Nonetheless, but the point was the unconditional and immediate surrender yeah. was the point that the unionists were like, hell yeah. They don't get to dictate terms to us anymore. Mm-hmm. They're done. They've commit they've aggressed against the union. Like yep. surrender. Wrap it up. So what had happened um, was that Grant had led this uh, major triumph and he had taken these two forts, uh, Henry and Donaldson. They're on the Kentucky Tennessee line. Okay. Okay, so that's key to like where we are in the war, a border to the south essentially. Right, right, right. Him knocking these forts down was an amazing victory. The north hadn't had a really good victory since our failure at Bull Run. We'd basically been demoralized and humiliated. This is us coming back. This really reinvigorated all of the north. Okay. Amongst it at Donaldson, Grant uh, he captured a garrison of 15,000 men. 
the greatest number of prisoners of war ever taken in one battle on this continent. This was Halleck. No, no, no. We haven't, we haven't oh. even met a Halleck yet. Oh. Like, we're talking Grant. We're talking the... Oh, God, gotcha. I should inform you, Halleck is the bad guy in the story. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> in, case, in case you are ready to turn on Grant, like, oh, sign me up with the Confederates. <laughs> Fuck it. No, Grant is going to be the victim of this tale. <laughs> Halleck is a catty, mean girl of a general. He's not inspiring. He's going to be kind of funny in a way. So Grant is doing this great shit. He did this. He... 15,000 men, right? Okay. These two forts. He's changed the whole course of the war for us. Um, but, Mike, you know who didn't get the attention maybe he deserved? It was the commanding officer who gave him the order to go take that fort. Oh. Now we can enter General Halleck. Oh, my God. Halleck is Grant's superior. Oh, my God. Are you serious? At the time, um, he had been in uh, St. Louis. Uh, when Grant took over uh, this big acquisition. And the news in the era was just more inclined to give credit to whoever was closest to the action. So that's why Grant got all the hopla for, like, taking the siege and pulling this off, Mm -hmm. right? So Halleck is a little like, what the hell? I kind of did a little bit of this. Uh, It should also be pointed out that... um, from these two forts, once we took them, the cell started to withdraw. We were able to capture uh, Tennessee, which was the capital for the Confederates up to that point, too. Like, that's how dramatic this advancement was. Okay. We're pushing them that right, far Right, right. This is a major turning point. Mm-hmm. So, that happens. Halleck is in uh, St. Louis, hundreds of miles away from the action. So, gets no credit <laughs> for it. He's just like, hey, by the way, I hired him. Oh, Mike, he does some <laughs> shit. He's not okay. going to take the standing. He is a Halleck, okay? okay, like, uh, okay. The one thing he's not going to do is let this go by. And it must have come as an unpleasant surprise to him that Grant had gotten all the glory. Halleck soon began a series of communications to Major General George B. McClellan, the general-in-chief of the army at the time. So basically, like, there's the Secretary of War, yeah. then the general-in-chief. The only other person involved is the goddamn commander-in-chief who oversees the Secretary of War, right? That's how many were four links down the chain to get to Halleck. Like, he is up there. Um, He starts sending messages to McClellan, basically talking shit about Grant. Oh, shit. (laughs) So um, they think that uh, he may have been motivated by nothing more uh, more complicated than sheer jealousy at the lionization of Grant. Um, it might also have been professional disdain. Halleck had met Grant in person not long before the campaign began and had not been impressed by the sight. Uh, it was an undistinguished looking officer. It was how he described him, uh, who was, uh, once described by his own staff officers as resembling a fly on the shoulder of beef (laughs) is what they described Grant as. (laughs) So, yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's, you know, that lets you know a little bit about Grant. Yeah. Like, clearly, he didn't care. He's the better soldier of the, yeah, the yeah, group yeah. of it, though. Um, but Halleck believed himself to be the better intellectual, the superior military man. You know, he's he's uh, so much better than this unprepossessing Illinoisian. Illinoisian uh, is where Grant comes from. Uh, after all, Halleck had once been lionized as one of the Army's best and brightest, too. Uh, I'm taking this from the article um, titled The Secret War Between Grant and Halleck, and this is by uh, Brian J. Murphy. If you guys want to check this out, it's on history.net, and it was first published in uh, 2006 in the Civil War Times. 
Oh. So it's a, it's a just a fantastic article. It's just going to take us through the story, which is why like I'm not too worried about going down Grant's backstory or right, anything right, else in the war. Like just we, give me, we give can just highlights. Tell, yeah, this tale, and it's a really fun story to go through. Um, so if you guys are any more interested in anything further, do check that out. But in the meantime, we're pursuing Halleck. We're on this vendetta, essentially. And uh, why don't I tell you a little bit why uh, Halleck was so awesome. So his name... <laughs> Henry Wagner, uh, I'm sorry, Henry Wagger Halleck, which if not, you, not if, Wagner, no, Wagger. But if you put an S in front of that, you got some swagger. <laughs> Damn uh, it. So he's born in New York in uh, 1815 and uh, throughout his college career, he's super successful. He knocks out all these academic achievements. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is elected to Phi Beta Kappa, which is an academic honor society. And he graduated ultimately third in his class at West Point. Oh, shit. That's very, pretty, very good. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Uh, and that was in like 1839. And he stayed on as a second lieutenant of engineers, and he taught as an assistant, uh, assistant professor. So we did that for about two years, basically. Uh, and then he moves on. Uh, he basically goes and visits Europe for a while. He's building up his academic career, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the guest of a French marshal. And he returns home. He's basically learned enough that he writes the report on the means of national defense, which is published as an official Senate document. This boosts his fame. He now has kind of national renown a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, he's in these military circles. He's making himself known. And... Um, he gets invited to the Lowell Institute of Boston, and he delivers 12 lectures on military matters. So at this point, he's like uh, either just torn 30. No, he's under 30 years old when he's doing all this. This is in his late 20s. He's okay. already an accomplished like military theologian, so to speak, right? right, right, right. And philosopher. And uh, he, at this point, has established his reputation as the country's supreme military thinker. Okay, hell yeah. Yeah, and this is all pre-Civil War, building up to it. This man is, like, coming out of the revolution. He's a master of caps. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he gets promoted to first lieutenant of engineers when he's 31. So this is in the year 1845. And at this point, he spends most of the Mexican War in California. He gets promoted to uh, general of the California militia. And uh, eventually, he just succeeds in that. And in 1861, he returns to, uh, I love the, the way this is phrased, he returned to the national colors. The national colors. So he joins back up with the national army, right? <laughs> and the big boys after fighting the, with the California militia. And uh, he ends up in, the depart- uh, in command of the Department of Missouri, taking over for uh, Major General John C. Fremont. And uh, so it's here that Halleck... Um, first took up the problem of capturing Henry and Donaldson. Those two forts. Right. Which I told you, he gave permission for. Mm -hmm. Also his idea, Mike, and he was down to do it earlier. He had sent a request of like, look, I just need 60,000 men. And if we can get these. So he sends it to McClellan, the guy who's like the commander, uh, not commander in chief, but uh, chief in the army. And uh, he's like, look, 60,000 men, we can do it. And he's just like, neither request is granted. Just like, I'm sorry, I can't give you those men. We don't got the resources or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he's got to shelve this plan. Now, it's about this time that Grant, in command down in Cairo, Illinois, asked to see Halleck to discuss the proposal to advance on Fort Henry. So they get a little meeting. This meeting doesn't go that well, Mike. Oh, no. I would say it bombs entirely. And this is, like, mostly because Halleck was recovering from the measles and was probably in no mood to listen to the brainstorm of an offer he considered his intellectual inferior. 
Damn. That seems like the riding thing yeah. for Halleck. He's got like some pride in him. And you show up, he's already sick. He already doesn't like you. He's not fucking listening to a word you say. So Grant fails to convince him of anything. And Grant leaves that meeting thinking he had like a terrible gaffe and that he really screwed up the pooch there. Um, like, know how you do it? Make this better? I'll just go ahead and make his plan work. Then I'll have to be friends with me. <laughs> yeah. You think that's a great yeah. then? He just wants to be Halleck's <laughs> friend. Yeah. So, um, it's like Halleck, Bob and Squidward. Halleck is so unimpressed, he uh, considers demoting Grant. Oh, no. Don't act on it just yet, but it's already planted the seed of like, God, I hate this guy. I really don't like you, Grant. So, Halleck, he changes his mind after Grant wires him news of a reconnaissance up Tennessee. Uh, like the Tennessee River, by Brigadier General C.F. Smith. Okay. That name's going to be important. Okay. We're going to come back to him a few times. Okay, okay. So Smith. Halleck likes Smith. They're, they're buddies. They go back. He gotcha. respects Smith. Smith is a bit older than Grant. So you can imagine him and Halleck are maybe contemporaries or cross paths a few times. Now, under Grant's command, uh, Smith was an old regular army man who Halleck respected. Smith found that Fort Henry was ripe for the taking. It had been built on low ground and was in constant danger to being inundated by the Tennessee River. So Grant wires Halleck for permission to mount an expedition to take the fort. Halleck grants the request. Now, Mike, the rest, uh, and I'm going to quote from the paper here, the rest, as they say, was history. Worse, it was news. Oh, because news is what yeah. really gets them uh, promoting Grant the whole way through. And uh, news is history's first draft. And Halleck may well have felt cheated by the papers as his behavior in these in the days that followed, which resembled that of a vindictive man suffering from <laughs> acute jealousy. <laughs> Not resembled. They just were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a, it's a very one to one comparison. We're not saying you are. We're just saying it's similar. Yeah, and uh, he even goes on to be like, look, we shouldn't read into this fully of him, but just to be like, his passions were capable of triumphing his com- of trumping his common sense. Apparently. And <laughs> just kind of overwhelming and steering him off. So, the official records contain Halleck's correspondence. After uh, the Civil War, Mike, the government took like active steps. I'm sorry, during the Civil War even, the Confederacy and the Union took active steps to preserving their records for the war. So when I say the official records, like we have a thing called the official records of the Civil War. Okay. Yeah. Is like, uh, it, at least at one point was its own institution called the official records. Mm-hmm. So now I think we would refer to it as the archives, like the National Archives. That's all this shit. So every correspondence that Halleck did, we kept it all. Oh, he, he sent it to base. Oh my God! Did you get it? All gets filed away. Is so, that uh, is included in this book? It it gets even better. Okay, gets even. But uh, partly that was what I read to you in the beginning. Any, any okay? Quote, any quotes I have from Halleck oh and stuff God. are gonna be from those records and such. Now, do you think he, uh, Halleck was some sort of inspiration for uh, Gurney Halleck's character? In, in what way? Uh, I am, sir. You refer to the young lord. <laughs> that was Grant again. That was Grant. Oh, that was Grant. Uh, that, that one message with Grant. Oh, okay. But I like that. Okay. <laughs> I am, I am, sir. And ever again, I am, sir. <laughs> um, but uh, in the weeks after Henry and Donaldson, so those two forts that fell, right. Hylex wires to and from Washington demonstrate his general scheme to have Grant cashiered, shelved, and demoted. What? We're going to pay him, fire him, and get him out of here. Like, like, but we just, he just did so many good things, right? He took my, took my thunder. So the campaign began in a wire on February 19th. 
And the first, we're going to start easy. We're a mean girl, Mike. We're going to, we're going to slight you in the soft way. Oh, so no. first, when I gave thanks, I thanked Commodore Andrew H. Foot before Grant in the message that it'll show him. <laughs> so you put some subordinate before Grant. Halleck then suggested to McClellan that the army honor not Grant, but his subordinate, C.F. Smith who had indeed played a key role in the left flank uh, during the battle for Donaldson. Halleck recommended that the army promote Smith over Grant's head, pointing out that, and quote here, by his coolness and bravery at Fort Donaldson, when the battle was against us, Smith turned the tide and carried the enemy's outworks. Make him a major general. You can't get a better one. Honor him for this victory and the whole country will applaud. This guy doesn't even know him either, right? No, no, he is. He's friends with Smith. Okay. He does know Smith, but okay. it's like he's picking and choosing. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Just like pass that, give the achievement over. He's trying to take every little thing away from Grant that he can. The following day, Halleck brazenly suggested an appropriate reward for himself in a wire to McKellen. <laughs> what do you think he requested? Halleck? It's pretty ridiculous. That's why I'm putting it out there. Yeah, Halleck sends a thing. Be like, yes, give Smith a reward and give something me. from me. What does he want, Mike? He, what, he's getting rid of uh, Grant somehow? That would make more sense. What he, did he ask for? I must have command of the armies in the West. Hesitation and delay are losing us the golden opportunity. Lay this before the president and secretary of war. May I assume the command? Answer quickly. What? He wants complete <laughs> control of the army in the West. Wow. I'm like, that's an escalation, my man. But yeah. yeah, you're desperate for some recognition. He's thirsty. Yeah. So in a March 3rd dispatch, so about two weeks have gone by since he suggested them, he got no response. Over either <laughs> of those. Respond quickly, crickets. He stopped pussyfooting around and planted the knife squarely in Grant's back. He made the following accusation. I have no communication with General Grant for more than a week. He left his command without my authority and went to Nashville. His army seems to be as much demoralized by the victory at Fort Donaldson as was the Potomac by the defeat of Bull Run. It's hard to censure a successful general immediately after a victory, but I think he richly deserves it. I, uh, I get no returns, no reports, no information of any kind from him. Satisfied with his victory, he sits down and enjoys it without any regard to the future. I am worn out and tired with this neglect and inefficiency. C.F. Smith is almost the only <laughs> officer equal to the emergency. You see? You see how plain this guy is? He's got one plan. He's going to die on that hill. Yeah, he's... Oh, my God. And it's, I, I get why they don't even respond. They're like, yeah. just throw it out. Anything from Halleck, just throw Put it out. in the Halleck bin. Yeah. <laughs> C.F. Smith. Now, uh, the assertion that Grant's army was in the same disorder as the defeated Federals, it's like the worst <laughs> loss of the thing, is a gross fabrication. Mm -hmm. uh, and even more so, Mike, Grant had been wiring regular returns. Halleck hadn't been getting them, though. Oh. There had been a spy at the telegraph operator, had rebel sympathies, and was throwing them out. Which is like the most mind-blowing fucking coincidence oh that this article doesn't go into further detail on. <laughs> so they were never even being received. Yeah, and I love that. Like, It doesn't tell me if Halleck knew that. I like how they are both innocent at this point in the story. of like, yeah, Halleck wasn't getting his reports. And he's like, fuck this guy. 
But there's like there happens to be one spy at a critical point. He's just like throw. Probably, probably didn't even know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, this well, seems important. You think he's just like this is just catty bullshit? <laughs> or no, he's starting. He he, he's starting to grant stuff, so it's actually real reports. Uh, but I love that. Uh, so that was really cool. I imagine that spy felt like the guy the, on the end of a, a wrong number. It's just like, I don't know what this person's talking about, but I'm really intrigued. <laughs> I don't know who Susan is, but like. Sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, so because like he sends these reports to the, his management saying like this guy below me is not getting it. Mm-hmm. Your management's going to back you. That's kind of their job in each ship. So McClellan's answer basically gave um, Halleck immense satisfaction. McClellan said the following. Your dispatch of last evening received. The future success of our cause demands that proceedings such as grants should at once be checked. Generals must observe discipline as well as private soldiers. Do not hesitate to arrest him at once if the good of the service requires it. And place C.F. Smith in command. You are at liberty to regard this as positive order if it will soothe your way. So he gives him a blank check. Go ahead. You're free to arrest Grant and you may hold this paper up as your order if anyone gives you shit. Wow. Now, uh, Halleck, now he's got the go-ahead, and he ends up wiring McClellan on March 4th, a couple days later. And a rumor has reached me that since the taking of Fort Donaldson, General Grant has uh, resumed his former bad habits. If so, it will account for his neglect of my often-repeated orders. I do not deem it advisable to arrest him at present, but I have placed General Smith in command of the expedition up to Tennessee. I think, I think Smith will restore order and discipline. Now, Mike, Grant had a problem with alcohol before. That okay. is his bad habit that they would know about and gotcha. would be aware of in the chain of command. Okay. But with a sneering reference to Grant's alleged drinking problem, Halleck had now unwittingly revealed that he was removing a victorious commander on the basis of a rumor. He Uh-oh. put that in fucking writing oh. and sent that up the chain. It undoes everything you've oh, done, right? So, like, they're like, actually, cancel that order. Like, that's, there's nothing substantial there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but nonetheless, Halleck directed Grant to turn his command over to Smith. He told Grant that he was embarrassed by having to reply to War Department telegrams that he didn't know what Grant's troop strengths were. The War Department had sent no such wires to him. What? He just lied to Grant. Oh. He's, he's going to do this a couple times. Oh, my God. So he's just like, oh, Grant, I've been covering your ass. And look, I'll save you, but you got to put Smith in charge. Just like Grant's like, oh, okay, thank you. I guess you got my back. So Smith was put in charge? Yep, Smith takes over. Man, um, well, Smith is just like, guys, I don't want to be between this. Like, <laughs> Well, suddenly, with the victory over Grant seemingly in his grasp, Halleck's fortunes began to reverse. Oh, no. He had set the trap for himself by passing on rumors as fact and making up charges against Grant. The charges were so serious, Mike, that the adjunct general of the army, Lorenzo Thomas, snapped. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. I love Lorenzo. It doesn't come up enough. Uh, He basically snaps his trap shut, and he asks for a full account of Grant's misdeeds. Like you've been complaining so much. Very well. Let me know everything. 
put it all into careful, articulated evidence and such. Like, we, make your case yeah, to me. We can fact check. Yeah, exactly. And the demand for details originated with President Abraham Lincoln, who wanted to know just what it was that his most successful combat general had done to deserve a blizzard of disapproval from his immediate commander. Oh, my God. You attracted too much attention. Now the president's on it. The president's like, what's up? Like, I'm not going to lie to the president. Yeah, and he's like, what? What's so bad about Grant? Oh, my God, have I made a mistake? Halleck, tell me of my miserror. <laughs> oh, Halleck. <laughs> the heartbroken Grant, now without a command, and residing in virtual arrest on a gunboat at Fort Henry. Because he had been taken by Smith. And he's basically, I imagine it's kind of like house arrest. Okay. You're just not allowed off that boat, but he probably can do whatever he wants and such. Um, <laughs> he's cracking up in that bottle and he's getting back into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That would be the most tragic. <laughs> if be. you could trace his drinking restarted because of this. <laughs> holy shit. Um, well, while he was there, at that point, he had three times requested relief from service in Halleck's department and demanded a review of the charges against him. <gasps> oh, Like, these had all been done yeah. by him and just not passed up. Uh, this, too, would require Halleck to come up with substantial facts to flesh out his charges. Uh, Halleck's cam campaign of deceit was now in shambles, and the preservation of his own hide was a pressing issue. So he sends off a message to Lorenzo Thomas on March 15th. So that's about, it took about two weeks to draft up this fucking response. <laughs> right, right. Or a week and a half, I guess. We're going to take his time with it. So uh, I'll give you the shortened version. But basically, he says like, uh, ooh, I was mistaken. Grant did okay, but he's still kind of fucked up. But I see why he did these errors. Uh, I'll read one excerpt from it. Okay. Of, uh, General Grant has made the proper explanations and has been directed to resume his command in the field. As he acted from a praiseworthy, although mistaken zeal for the public service in going to Nashville and leaving his command, I respectfully recommend that no further notice Notice be taken of it. Like, don't punish him, man. He's trying his best, even though he fucked up here. And here yeah, and here hey, and here. he fucked up multiple times. But guys, maybe we just closed the book on this one. Huh. Maybe, like, no looking into any of this is <laughs> best for everybody. But especially Grant. Especially Grant. <laughs> so, Grant, he's at the head of his troops again, and just in time for the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, but Halleck's mistrust and jealousy persisted. He continues to lie to Grant, telling him he had been shielding him from enemies in Washington who were seeking Grant's ouster from command, and falsely claimed that McClellan had complained about the command of the Tennessee River Expedition. So again, Halleck is just leading Grant on, and now he's gaslighting Grant to be like, be my friend, I helped you so much. Oh my god. You would have never gotten out of that prison boat if it wasn't for me. Jeez. And, like, without being able to see the other stuff, yeah. What else is Grant going to know? Like, you just kind of take somebody for their word. Mm -hmm. That was very big at the time. Now, uh, this was not to be Halleck's last shot at humiliating Grant, however. That's a lifelong endeavor. And on uh, April 6th and 7th of 1962, Grant's army was surprised by a Confederate force. And uh, so this is at the Shiloh Meeting House. And basically, this force comes up, and it's the bloodiest engagement fought by American soldiers up to that time. And uh, Grant's caught off guard. There are a lot of deaths, and he's kind of blamed, in the, again, in the media for that loss. And Halleck is more than happy to hop on this one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he's half fine with you getting the bad news. And so he came down to take command of Grant's army in person, combining it with another general's force uh, and the army of one uh, General John Pope, 
so all together, he has an, a combined force of 100,000 men at this point. Ooh. So remember how... That's eclipsing that 60,000 he asked What for. did he want at command of a four? He wanted to control the army of the West, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he's basically taking up all these guys' control, putting under his own uh, through scurliest means. And um, he fields them, and he marches them out. Grant is... Uh, they use this phrase often. It's called kicked upstairs. And it's sort of like knocking you to a desk job. Gotcha. Right? Like you, upstairs is further away from the battle, right, further right, right. away from command. And uh, he is basically put to um, Halleck's second in command, but with no duties, not even that of chief of staff. He's just sitting there. Just on paper. Exactly. Okay. Um, Grant was pushed out of the way by Halleck himself, uh, as Halleck himself, I'm sorry, inched his mighty army a few thousand yards a day from Pittsburgh Landing to Corinth, Mississippi. So we're on this stretch. We're going to go invade Corinth. And basically what happened at Shiloh, where uh, Grant was caught off guard, Halleck is never going to let that happen to him. So every day we're stopping early enough to reinforce our camp. So we're only moving a few miles a day because we're taking all this extra time to reinforce the camp every fucking night. Because we do that, Mike, one, we never find any army. Uh, the army we're chasing gets entirely away because yeah. we take so long to get down there. But we're very safe the whole way. Okay. Uh, so there was no surprise, no, nor was there the destruction or capture of the enemy army. The Confederates slipped at the back door of Corinth to the south and safely, even with Halleck's behemoth army lumbering up the city's northern gates. Now... Uh, Grant, you know, left without voice or duties, he considers retiring from the army at this point. He's ready to throw in the towel of just like, I'm not doing anything. What is the point of my life here? If this is all I, you know, he tried to get un out from under Halleck three times right. and he couldn't. He just doesn't see a point for himself. At this point, another general shows up, which the name might sound familiar, but General Sherman. Oh, I love how all the generals just know each other and yeah. they just show up in each other's tails <laughs> like this. So. Grant is down and out. He's like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to meh. His buddy Sherman, bam, kicks open the door. And it's just like. Into the locker room. Like, hey, Grant. Grant, what are you doing, man? Look, Grant. War is strange business. Anything can happen. Tells him to hold on. Grant does. That's all he needed. He gets a little pep talk from Sherman. And he's <laughs> like, okay. War is strange business, so I might as well hold on. Uh, Throws McCullough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of his, his sweaty towel. Yeah. <laughs> towel they can catch. <laughs> and, like, it works. It also, um, uh, Halleck gets kicked upstairs. He gets a promotion. Oh. Now, uh, because of his exploits at the gate of Corinth, so you know he just marched his army there? Nobody, right. nobody died. I think that was the more important part. Because compared to McClellan in the East, Halleck looks like a conquering hero coming out of this. Okay. He okay. lost no men. He took this Corinth. He pushed him out. So Lincoln and the Secretary of War are just like, that's our man. And they promote Halleck to the Grand Architect of the War and name him General-in-Chief of the United States. Oh. So he gets McClellan's job. McClellan's oh, out. Halleck's in. What happened to McClellan? Gone. Just uh, gone. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they... Uh, he's upstate, Mike. He's on a farm. He's, 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 uh, he's running laps. Uh, thus, Grant got his old job back. Hey! Hey! His army was widely scattered. Uh, and basically now they're stretched along the entire Tennessee River, which lungs like the entire state of Tennessee. This right. runs the course of. And uh, he's put on the strategic defensive for the first time in his Civil War career. But Grant had weathered the worst that Halleck could throw at him. So he could handle this. Yeah. A little logistics, we're on it. 
Now, this is where our story takes a strange turn, Mike. And uh, you've heard of the phrase strange bedfellows indeed. Yeah. Let's talk about the alliance of Grant and Halleck. And oh. when they team up for a little buddy cop action. Oh, my God. So Halleck is in command of the whole uh, whole war at this point. Okay. Grant's got control of this army doing mm-hmm. his thing. A man underneath Grant, one John A. McClarnard. McClarnard. <laughs> it's a really gross name. Uh, and it's like coming from McLennan and then going to Clarnard. Yeah. McClarnard. Clarnard. So John A. McClarnard. Uh, he served with Grant uh, through Shiloh, but he's also a personal friend of Lincoln's. Oh. He conspired with Lincoln and the Secretary of War, who gave Halleck that promotion, right. and came up with this plan of just like, look, we need to take over this place in Mississippi called Vicksburg. It's basically like if you follow go from Tennessee over, you can get to a point in the Mississippi River. I think it's around Memphis. Okay. You can go all the way south to Vicksburg. From oh. There. And that's the heart of the Confederacy at this point. And if we got there, we can go anywhere. Because that Mississippi River is a great avenue right. down into it. So, Lincoln, Secretary of War, and Clarinard decide we should raise an army of volunteers. Clarinard will take control. I'm going to say it like that every time. He's going to take control of them and lead them down the Mississippi and do this action. In doing this, though, you're going around both Grant and Halleck and this man taking control of the army. Halleck, uh, I'm sorry, Grant finds out about this. Not happy. He's not on board with this plan at all. Oh. And uh, he ends up sending word to Halleck, basically. Halleck's like, wait, no, they're doing this to me too. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, a, it's super irregular to have like uh, organizing a, a private army outside of the U.S. military's chain of command. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. Even then. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a private militia at that point. Yeah, exactly. So it was an unintended insult to Halleck and a serious breach of protocol for a subordinate general to bypass his department commander, being Grant, and the general-in-chief, Halleck, to appeal directly to the president and secretary of war. So um, when they found this out, uh, Halleck digs in. And uh, Halleck's uh, previous career, he was a lawyer at one point. Oh, He's got that in his background. So he looks up the paperwork of this. He finds a goddamn loophole. And the orders given from um, Stanton, who is the Secretary of War under Lincoln, to McClarnard. Right. And it basically says that, uh, skipping the beginning part, when a sufficient force not required by the operations of General Grant's command shall be raised, an expedition may be organized under General McClarnard's command against Vicksburg. That little catch there. Not required by Grant. Grant now. He's just like, I need them. Exactly. Basically, that's the message that uh, yeah. Alex sends down to Grant. Here you go, buddy. This is all you need. And uh, so Clarenard, he's allowed to raise his army. Go for it. And they let him. And I love oh, this. How is, much do they waste trying to do that? He goes to six states. Or I'm sorry. Uh, he goes to a few states and he's able to raise like uh, six regiments. He goes to a few more, raises six other regiments. He sends them to Memphis. Um, and then he's going to meet them down there. So uh, he sent these troops. Uh, he's getting them in two groups. And the first group shows up in Memphis. And basically they show up to Grant. And Grant's like, uh, awesome. Grant sends one more message back to Halleck. I mean, like, Am I to understand that I lie still here while an expedition is fitted out from Memphis? Or do you want me to push as far south as possible? 
Am I to have Sherman move subject to my order, or is he and his forces reserved for some special service? Will not more forces be sent here? Now, he's just asked for permission, and then Halleck is like, no, they're yours, buddy. And uh, we come up with a plan where I think Halleck and Grant are going to steal the thunder right now. Mindful that McLaren's plan was one of Lincoln's pet projects, Halleck's reply to Grant was careful and short. You have command of all troops sent to your department, and you have permission to fight the enemy where you please. That's like, basically between the two of them, they're both acknowledging like, Lincoln has... We're not going to go against the president. The president wants this right. to happen, so we need to make that happen. So but, be the guy that makes it happen. But fuck McLaren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> fuck McLaren. That's that seems that's their that's really yeah, yeah. their only goal, Mike. They both team up to be like, not you. I love. Otherwise, it. there's no reason. Why wouldn't you just let him do true, it? True, true. It would have been better for the the union, I think. So. Uh, Halleck, who still needed to keep McLarnard uh, happy, telegraphs Grant on November 15th that he would like to see the enemy turned by a movement down the river from Memphis as soon as sufficient force can be collected. So now giving a, leaving a little more, like, do it. Um, so Grant does. And the question now was whether um, the downriver offensive against Vicksburg should wait for the arrival of McLarnard or not. What do you think? No. No. <laughs> Get going. Neither Grant nor Halleck thought so. Grant wires Halleck on December 8th that he should get like going with these 40,000 men. Grant sends one back to Halleck before ever getting his. Being like, <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> and uh, the president may insist upon designating a separate commander, i.e. McLarenod. If not, assign such officers as you deem best. Sherman would be my choice. And he goes. <laughs> Again, and this is Grant this yeah. time being like, and i but my buddy up for the record. <laughs> you guys are hilarious all around. McLarenard, he's in the dark. Uh, he doesn't even know what the fuck is going on. He gets to Memphis and finds out the force has already left. I was going to like, ah, oh, where's my army? Yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, he runs as fast as he can. And um, basically, McLarenard, he catches up with the troops after they had been uh, repl- uh, repulsed by the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. So the troops are heading down there, right? They're not with Grant right now. Uh, I think going to rendezvous with them. They got repulsed in this one little battle. He catches up. Now he has his papers, and he's like, no, 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 guys. We are the army of the Mississippi. He takes command of this army. He starts marching them in the ass opposite direction. Oh, no. He's going somewhere else. Uh, And I believe he's taking the army into, like, um, one of the other territories. And, uh... Grant finds out about this, and he's just like, God damn it. He vents to Halleck and says, General McLaren has gone on a wild goose chase to the post of Arkansas. Am I ready to reinforce? I'm ready to reinforce, but must await further information before knowing what to do. So, like, uh, McLaren took this, went off. He's like, uh, Grant's like, oh, God, I can cover for this mistake he's made, but, like, I can't keep going down to Vicksburg without more people or more instruction. Halleck responds, you are hereby authorized to relieve General McLaren from command and the expedition force against Vicksburg, giving uh, given it to the next in rank or taking it yourself. Grant takes it himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're really two peas of the same pod in some manner. That's exactly what Halleck right, did with right. his army. So Grant goes down, takes him out. McLaren is sidelined from duty for the siege of Vicksburg. When the outcome was beyond doubt and Grant can no longer be hurt by McLaren's friendship with the president, gone, fired him, 
Get the hell out of my army. You're not welcome here. We toss that man to the wolves. Oh, my God. Love it. Grant and Halleck worked harmoniously through the conflict's end. It was nearly two decades after the end of the war when Grant was researching the official records for his <laughs> memoirs that he finally found out what a committed foe he had in Halleck and how close he had come to dismissal and disgrace. Like, he had no idea that whole time. That wild... And, like, I actually listened to um, the, a chapter of his memoirs uh, mm -hmm. about the uh, siege when Halleck took over the army. Right. Does not come through in his writing at all because he is the bigger man of them all. <laughs> I'm just like, I thought that was hilarious. And oh, my God. He didn't even know he had an arch nemesis. Didn't even. <laughs> but can you, like, how hurt you must be, like, seeing it. Yeah. And, like, I don't know when Halleck passed or if they were still in, like, uh, communication or anything at that point. But, like, yeah, for that whole journey, that is, that's, like, that is the greatest ending, I think, to that whole wow, little bit there. yeah, that's nice. I like that. That is my little bonus journey for you, Mike. I, what? what? Bonus Halleck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've indoctrinated you. <laughs> yeah. It's just such that a, it's an good. institution. That, that was a pleasant made. surprise. I don't... We haven't done a, a civil war. I don't think we have it all. Have yeah, we? yeah. We never touched on that period. Never come up. That's really exciting. That's cool. I'm glad I like it. Roll one into it. And a famous Halleck that is like, yeah, so near and dear to all these events that right? we should know. Oh man, do we have a do we have a little Giovanni coming? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Here, here he is. Come here, buddy. Oh, Ooh, do, a little, do a little circle. Oh, sh oh, he's got the tree. Oh, Mike, you gotta take that Christmas tree hey, down. You should have. Come here, buddy. Get you a little one. What do you got here? Have you been, Giovanni? Is that ice on you? It, yeah, it's getting cold. Like we, we also need a house for the bat. Um, <laughs> we need a house for the bat. That's on you. He's gonna. That's live. why the tree's still there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, get used to it, bud. All right, let's get a little ED tube here. And, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Mike. I got a good one for you. All right. This came off Twitter uh, from the underscore black shelf. Okay. Sent us a message. That's actually a bookstore uh, down in New Hampshire. Oh, cool. It's a, a cult, uh, old occult books. Oh. <laughs> uh, but he sent us a message, and this is great. Uh, so, hey, guys, just a clarification question. I'm new to the pod and wanted to check. Is the glossary game using the fandom app to do glossary? Or is it, um, and is the Dune Encyclopedia the one that, this looks like he sent us a picture of, uh, he got it right, <laughs> the book that you have. If so, where did you get the encyclopedia? <laughs> and uh, they've been binging the pod. They're excited for yeah, more. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I did already let Black Star or Black Shelf responded to him. Black Star. Black Star rising. Um, but yeah, we didn't use fandom. Fandom is like um, kind of like a wiki like a, page. I was going to say, is it like a wiki? Exactly. It, I feel like something like that would uh, have too many spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because I was the one doing the glossary game. It was like uh, beyond spoilers. It is also like the expanded Dune universe. So it's going to have some stuff that like. Oh, from like uh, Brian Herbert's books. Yeah, yeah. So stuff that would like okay. conflict with what we're even acknowledging in like right, right, our right. little uh, Dune universe mm. with the encyclopedia. Um, so yeah, that we're just sticking to the book, doing tried and true. And I think that also uh, opens us up to like potentially going to other glossary game maybe down the road. But mm. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, Touch of bases. As for the encyclopedia, good luck ever finding one of those. Uh, since the buzz for the movie really ramped up, everyone bought all of them out. Uh, oh. I was lucky. I think I mine was, uh, 
I think it was 80. Did I say 80 back then? Yeah, time? you said 80. Yeah, and then it, it like I remember when it climbed to 150, and I think it's up to like 500 now. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you can look on like Abe Books is a great one. It might be A Books, by the way. I always call it Abe. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought I, you were just like really like butchering eBay. No, for a no, I, 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 for some reason I think it's like Japanese. Oh, okay. But like it might just be Abe. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> great uh, bookshelf or book site. Uh, as well as I got mine on Amazon. They have good buyer options for seeing like a variety of them. Okay. Uh, and some other used book places I looked around. Um, but yeah, encyclopedias, few and far to come between. If you find one, pick it up. I really love it. Uh, I would also encourage you to check out the book uh, Maker of Dune. That's the one I'm going to look into when we do Dune Messiah. Ooh. Uh, almost identical cover art for it. And they're uh, essays by Frank Herbert himself talking about like what inspired him for parts of Dune and such. So okay. Seems really cool. Um, it might be right up your alley, Black Shelf. So that's all. Uh, that's the only message we got, though. Coming in. I appreciate it. Just put them in the tree. Oh, back to it, buddy. Why don't you stay there for a little bit? That's all up to that ornament. I got a little wine bottle ornament on there. <laughs> he's nipping at it. He's, it's gonna be. It's gonna have the cap torn off. He's gonna be really mad. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah. You know what, Mike? If we gotta keep this up, you gotta read the next part. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't pick out. <laughs> I didn't read any of it, so I didn't mm -hmm. like pick out. Oh, I just meant no. We do teasers first, Mike. Before oh. we... I got the tagline. I thought you wanted me to read like, no, no, the teaser. I got like, it. I guess I'll pick something. You're not taking the teaser. You can't. That would break. That would break everything. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is as far as we go. Yeah. Uh, do you guys got a question for us? Um, you know why we can afford? Uh, we are at Spice World Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us at SpiceWorldPod at gmail.com. And, of course, there is our website at SpiceWorldPod.com. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, come over and join our CH over at our Patreon at Patreon.com slash SpiceWorldPod. <laughs> That's where you can find all of our exclusive Between Two Dunes episodes. Things like... The Ampaliros. Gamont. Highliners. And uh, what was that last one that we just did? Ooh. Norma Senva. And Aurelius or Venport. Senva or Sevna? I forget. S I Sevna. Sevna. Sevna Venport. Okay. Uh, their combined story, which really filled in like the leading right up to the foundation of the guild. Mm -hmm. Really fun. Uh, Mystic Mariners. Yeah, that's right. But uh, all right. So... <laughs> now tell me, what do I have to look forward to next week? Now back to the normal. Yeah. Back to it. Okay, guys. I, I think we're done. Yeah. I think we're done with the Freaky Friday of it all. Yeah. Back in their own bodies. All right. <clears throat> Mike, I already kind of told you we're sticking with, uh, sticking with the bear. Sticking with her. We got to really suss out what the enemy is thinking because we only got 10 chapters left. We're at the end. Wow. Is so it? you you space that out. We still need to do a conflict and a resolution. Wow. So we're getting there. Let me start. <clears throat> Howard shook his head. You know you have two alternatives, Baron. You can kill off the natives, wipe them out entirely, or waste an entire workforce. Would you prefer to have the Emperor in those great houses he can still swing behind him, come in here, and perform a cutterment, scrape out Getty Prime like a hollow gourd? The Baron studied his mentat. He wouldn't dare. Wouldn't he? I mean, he would. <laughs> he fucking really yeah. would. And with wow. that, a uh, karetament is an instrument 
used for like uh, it's a surgical instrument for like scooping things out. Oh, I didn't know that. So it's basically like a melon baller. Yeah, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, like really small yeah, thing. Yeah. They use it for like some dental surgery and stuff like that. Um, so it was actually right on for scraping out Gady Prime like a hollow gourd. Wow. And hey, it's good to get some dialogue from Thufir again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't been since Kyle. Yeah, it's been. Has it been that long? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He didn't talk at once with Fade or anything. No. We, just re- we just referred that we had Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Mike, the next chapter is the Baron and the, the Hawat talking. I'm excited that's to a, see that. That's a good conversation. Uh, I think we'll just have to wait. Well, until then, the, the spice, spice must flow. Let's get into it. Yeah. The year. 19. Fuck it. Give me a clap. (laughs) You're not going to know about that mistake.